Kevin and I are not going to say much, so it's all you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can always you can always preparing react my responses. to stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm preparing my responses. Oh my gosh. Yep. Whoa! Oh, oh. Okay, what we what we need to do actually is just do a soundboard of us responding to stuff, and then you can just drop in and editing like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" <laughs> but like, make sure you edit it in really choppy so it's super obvious that we're not actually on the episode. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that is knows that COVID-free is the way to be. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, the half of us, Dennis and Richard, who were <laughs> uh, out down and out because of COVID post-Midwest Conquest are now recovered, and we are able to record again. And this is probably our second episode in June, and as promised, because a Preferred Enemy always <laughs> repays his debts... We are going to be covering the long awaited. No, 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 Dennis. No, Dennis, that's too early. Too early. Too early. Back it up. Back it up. I know you're real excited. I actually really am. Ex- <laughs> nope, nope. We're going to be talking about Gene Steeler cults today. We promised we'd cover it before the end of June, and here we are. So we are going to be discussing 10 things you need to know about Gene Steeler cults. But before that, as always, news, new releases, and your listener mail. And uh, we've had two big pieces of news and new releases, not counting the release of Horse Heresy. Horse Heresy is now out. Uh, the Age of Darkness box is out. The uh, Mark, like, I want to say the Mark, the Mark Sixes are obvious, well, are included in there, but like all those special weapons packs. The Kratos yeah. and Demos are out, but they are out out as in they're in back order they sold out very very quickly yeah to the i'm point not where surprised my, my pre-orders are on back order at peculiar so i mean wow. those looked really nice yeah I, i'm picking up a kratos and two demos because i'm i'm going to go ahead and build a salamander's uh horse heresy army it's gonna it's along with all my other army projects because i have a problem <laughs> but um <laughs> Well, Games Workshop sent us the Age of Darkness box, and I can't not build it and paint it. Well, we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll get to army problems at the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so Horus Heresy, it, they are pushing it very big. Um, and they also now, we are getting, uh, I believe, a plastic Sakaran. They did confirm that. Yeah. And a plastic Leviathan, which I think has came out uh, and been announced since the last time we talked about it. It's hard to like remember when the last time we talked about things because Midwest Conquest episode we didn't actually talk about new releases, so it's like it feels like there's been like a month and a half, <laughs> right? <laughs> but no, the uh, the Sakaran and the uh, the Leviathan Siege Dreadnought, which fantastic to have that in plastic. That is a and that's one that's going to sell big because that's also very popular in forty, just standard forty mm-hmm. k as well. So, uh, but not having to to get it via Forge World is really nice. So that's. That is good. But no, as far as 40K goes, we're going to, there's two big things we want to talk about. 
And, you know, we've been getting little little dribs and drabs on Chaos Space Marines, and we'll obviously be talking about that sooner rather than later. And I believe this week is also when the new White Dwarf that has the uh, World yes. Eaters information came out. Like, it should be on shelves. Uh, I haven't read it yet because I'm on their subscription program, and I feel I made a terrible mistake by doing so because it is perennially <laughs> late. Like, by <laughs> almost a month. Oh I, 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 I like last week I received last month's issue. Oh, oh wow. I actually, re- I actually received two of last month's issue because I told them, Hey, I'm getting like, I'm behind on issues. So I need like, I, for some reason, like I haven't received, like, I think it was like, I hadn't received like April's or May's issue and like, okay, well we'll send you a replacement. And then I get, and then like May's issue came or, and then I got, like, so then another one arrived, and they're like, oh, yeah, this will be arriving, like, this week. And I opened it up, and it was another copy of May's issue. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is messed up now. And I'm like, I don't want to so cancel I- yet. <laughs> I did go ahead and pick pick mine up because uh, my store here in Phoenix was doing the uh, midnight release for the Horse Heresy. So I went and picked the, the Age of Darkness box up and picked up the... Uh, the code, you know, the the white dwarf, and immediately opened the white dwarf and like read through it and punched out all the cards. Uh, I haven't opened the Age of Darkness box yet because <laughs> you know where my attention is. Uh, right, there's some cool stuff there in the World Eaters code, the mini codex. Uh, it's new, new profiles for Karn and Berserkers, which I think were posted on White Dwarf. Uh, were posted like as samples already, uh, and if not, they're out there on the internet where you can find the information. Um, there's not really a lot in it. It's just those two unit profiles. Uh, you do you did get cards, uh, punch out cards for like the um, stratagems, and actually uh, punch out cards for the unit entries, which I thought was really cool. So, you know, on the card stock page, you actually have like a little like half page uh, postcard type thing that has the unit entry for berserkers on one side and Karn on the other, uh, which is useful. It references a lot of books that don't make uh, rules that don't make sense yet because it references the Chaos Space Marine Codex. So it's not really playable by itself yet. I figure we can discuss it more in depth once we get the Chaos book out, once it actually releases. But half of the half of the stuff that's in there references things that we don't know yet. Right. But I'm cool. It's coming out. You know that we're getting World Eaters as our own faction. So I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's, we, what we say? Waiting patiently for Angron and New Berserkers. <laughs> yeah, they might be, like, end of year. Like, since we're just, yeah. like, all we've seen so far is, like, here's the renders of Chain Axes. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's been bits and pieces, but we'll talk about uh, Chaos Space Marines when the time is, has come to discuss that book in fullness. But they have made it pretty clear. That's coming soon. That's our next book. Um, so... Instead, we're going to talk about the the two things we're going to talk about is first new paints and second new missions. So uh, there was a whole big buildup in the last week or so of oh GW is going to do this big revolution in painting, and they had this uh, video like that showed like characters in like Age of Sigmar and 40k and Horse Heresy like running forward as gray plastic, and then paint splashes on them, and they're in new colors and i saw rumors of everything from color shift paints 
to primerless paints where you could just paint directly on the models and get good vibrant colors and the paint would stick, which, you know, that's a dream right there. Um, (laughs) And instead, what we get is an expanded line of contrast paints, an expanded line of shades, including reformulating all the existing shades and a new white primer. One that's actually white and doesn't doesn't, uh, spray on like shit. Yeah, like... Um, there's a, a YouTuber named Kirioth, and he do- covers uh, 40k, mostly Age of Sigmar stuff, but he also covers a bit of 40k. And he was talking about that he was excited, like the biggest change for him was that they're releasing this new spray primer because he's like everyone would tell him, "Oh, you just need to spray the old <laughs> Corax white like in the right." conditions and he's like what right conditions i've tried all of them i've tried sacrificing <laughs> small animals to the gods to try to make it prime, prime properly i've tried to do it after the first rain before the flowers bloom i've tried everything and it still yeah. goes on like garbage yeah I, so- I hope there i hope this new white spray is good every every white paint that gw has made thus far has been garbage and I, I don't use their white paints. I use whites from any other company. So well, I hope this is good, but I'm not super holding out hope. <laughs> yeah, I should. I've heard good things about Pro Acryl's whites, like their titanium yes. white is apparently like super It's very white. good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and white primers are particularly problematic. They always turn out dusty and gritty and off-white. Mm-hmm. It's white. White's a hard color to do because the the pigmentation, like the actual particles of pigment tend to be very large, which is yeah. uh, one of the things that GW has tried to improve in their paints, and I don't know if they've quite gotten there yet, but <laughs> they keep trying. Yeah. Uh, apparently, the, uh, the new shades, they are dropping the gloss shades if you liked those. Um, so if you like gloss Nuln Oil, for example, buy up the supply now because it's going away soon. But uh, I will say the thing they're pushing with these new contrasts is very vibrant colors. Very yes. vibrant for the most part. Although, yeah, Dennis, no. you and I were talking last night and you had a, a concern on some of these. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw the from the website how they looked. And some of them, yeah, you could tell they seeped in well and they seemed contrasty others i guess the contrast was much too subtle that or maybe you have pictures but they it looked just like one flat color and that means i would have a lot more touch-ups to do because i i really like using contrast paints because mm-hmm. it kind of takes a few steps away that i don't have to then do um so some of them like especially that frosty white one where it's like the, a white with the blue that was seep into the things that looked really cool. But I think it was like the bright yellow, bright red and bright purple where I guess it was so bright. I, d- I couldn't tell the contrast. Yeah. I'm like going through the, the page and like Imperial fist and bad moon yellow are just, they just look bright yellow. Like there's very little contrast that I can see. And same with the magma Droth flame, which is their orange. Um, Ball red also doesn't look like it has a lot of contrast. Asterman blue looks good. Carondra's mm-hmm. green looks good. The Luxion purple, which is the the rich dark purple they they slathered on a Keeper of Secrets, yeah, it just looks dark purple. Like it's it's vivid. It's a strong purple, but it's not yeah. contrasty. Yeah, that that one just looks like it's like, hey, we made a Keeper of Secrets, but in plastic 
you know, uh, in plastic. purple plastic yeah, rather than it like. Kind of reminds like, me of mm-hmm. under underworld characters that come in those colored plastics. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say this: I am excited for the fact that they have more colors and they're having more brighter colors because even if. Let's say, for example, with like the Iron, the Imperial Fist, and the uh, Bad Moon Yellow, which are, if they're very vibrant yellows that go on very easily, you can then knock them d- down with like shades or something like that, and still get to a vibrant yellow in fewer steps than you do right now. Which is like, okay, paint it black, then paint it brown, then paint it this color, then do. Yeah, and like build up to get to a good yellow because yellow is a hard color to paint. If you can do this where it's like spray paint it white, paint it in contrast yellow, and then like wash it, that's still way simpler. So I, I want to see yeah. how these come out. <laughs> but and, and, I, yeah. I'm still the fond person of two thick coats. And <laughs> sure. I, I understand. I am too. <laughs> Isn't that the anti-Duncan stance or something? It is. Yes. That would be the anti-Duncan. No, actually, the anti-Duncan would, would be one real thick coat. Like, we, we've released a color called Alpharius Blue. It's as thick as two space marines in a trench coat. I will say this, though. I'm I'm looking at, like, the uh, the, the new yellows and, like, even the, uh, the, I think, the Manus Warrior Green that they had on there. And I'm like, you know, this actually means that I might be able to do my Necron army, uh, my yellow Necron army, like, Oh, nice! I do want to see those guys again. Yeah, I'm like, so like, I will have to, I will have to pick some of these new ones up to like try to find that out and see if I can actually make that work. My laziness has paid off. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that like the blues and greens are probably the best of these. Like they all look really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm probably gonna have to pick up some of that that gut rip of flesh to to paint my my uh, whatever the Age of Sigmar the new the cruel boys. Yeah. The the one uh, that the one that really kind of sticks out to me is that the Gargax sewer like that looks like really like corroded and like dirty metal and I'm like if I can just do that in one coat out of a pot that's awesome <laughs> yeah that one I, that one really <laughs> grabbed me as like wait a minute it goes into like like rusty brown highlights automatically yeah. that like that's <laughs> magic right there that is magic in a pot if it does that. <laughs> Yeah, I like that one. Like, I even like the the frost heart blue, the one they've got all over that phoenix. Like, it's a, a nice, strong light blue, which is something they don't really have right now. It's like stronger than ethermatic blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Croxagor scales look really good. Um, the yeah, the Briar Queen chill and Pilar Glacier, those kind of ethereal paints, those look really nice. I'm interested in seeing how the new shades work. And apparently they've re like I said, they've redone the existing shades. So we'll see how those work as well. But I kind of like some of these subtler shades because like you don't always want to use something like Caraber Crimson or something like that. And this Berserker blood shade looks like it's a more subtle red shade. That'll like, mm-hmm. won't change the color of the model quite as much. What's that word you use there when you were describing paints subtle. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means. <laughs> So you're more of a magma droth flame person. I gotcha. Okay. You want that glow in the dark, punch you in the face color. Ooh, Dayglow Necrons and Dayglow Berserkers. Oh, dear Lord. Stop him. Okay. That actually could be kind of cool. I might try that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Hmm. But yeah, I, like I look at the the ball red that they have, and I'm like, that will need to be combined with the Berserker Bloodshade to actually provide contrast, because the ball yeah. red just looks like, oh, that we made just the model bright red, and there the only shadows you see are the ones that where they're actually like light being blocked by other parts of the model. 
So I, I like I'm not necessarily in, somebody who's gonna like rush out and get like all of these or even most of these. But there's a few like yeah, Garagax sewer I definitely want to pick up. Like there's a few that I'm like I will definitely pick this up because I can use them, and I'm interested in seeing what the new shades are like. I don't know if I'll buy the new GW primer because gw primer is super expensive for what you get but well i will say this much like the retributor retributor armor which is like the one spray that i that i do use of theirs if it's actually good and it's a good clean white i might buy that buy this primer like when i need it but yeah i don't usually use their primers because they're multiple times more expensive than other spray primers uh, like, but what, if, 16 18 dollars a can something like that uh retributors uh, more i believe it's closer oh, to 30 yeah it's closer to 30 <laughs> yeah. for retributor yeah um, but the oh others God. yeah are about about yeah. 16 17 i believe rob and i've used the like the wraith bone one and it comes across really oh, nice my, oh, yeah. oh i yeah. just looked i looked on the, yeah. the website and i really wish i hadn't 33 dollars for a can of retributor armor yeah. oh it's gone yeah. up okay I mean, oh but I, I, I will say this, though. It's a really good gold spray paint, but, like, it yeah. It really is. But, yeah, I, that's the thing. Like, if this is actually a good white spray paint that goes on the way they describe it, then, sure, it might actually be worth the $33 they're going to charge. I don't know that I'll use it a ton, but, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, because, like, I'm working on... Well, and this will get into hobby progress, but I'm working on a particular army and I've been contemplating like getting a Wraithbone spray and using uh, like Skeleton Ord contrast to like sp- like speed paint a good chunk of it. And I'm mm. looking at them like, yeah. but maybe I don't want to because 22 bucks a can. Oh, it's 22 now? 22. Wow. Like, so the Chaos Black is 18. Hopefully the Codex, what is it? Codex White? Corax, Corax White. Yeah. Corax White. No, White Scar. White Scar. That's White what it's Scar. called now. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the new that's, one. The that's, new one. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, hopefully White Scar will also be 18 because it's uh, just a base color. But then all the rest of their non-metallic mm-hmm. sprays are 22. And then the metallic sprays, except for Lead Belcher, for reasons, are th- like Retributor Armor and Rune Lord Brass are 33. And that's a lot to ask for a can of spray paint. <laughs> yeah. I have used the Wraithbone also. I I I do like it. Maybe it's worth it. I mean, I don't know. You can you can hold out hope that it'll be eighteen dollars, but uh, you're going to be holding out for a while. Is it will not be eighteen dollars? <laughs> no. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've well, like for a while down here, there's... you couldn't even find it. Right, and, and like Army Painter's not much better because it's like seventeen dollars a can. And I've heard Army Painters really mixed quality. Like some of them are absolute yeah. garbage. I've heard. I mean, that's there's a reason why most most people just spray th- you know undercoat in black and then paint from there. Like, yeah, no, I, I learned the hard way. Don't do that with contrast paint. So I'm not. No, you can't do that. Yeah, you can't do it with contrast. But which yeah. explains why they're pushing this with the new contrast line because that's the only mm-hmm. way you're going to get the colors quite as vibrant as that is to do a oh, pure white. Yeah. yeah. You prime this with like a, a Wraithbone or a Gray Seer or a, just like a generic gray spray primer, even a white, like a, like a Krylon white. It's not going to be you're going to get colors that are a little bit more muted than this. So what's what's very interesting is the uh, the game store that I go to here in Phoenix, uh, they actually have the, on the wall of their GW contrast paints. They actually have a uh, a thing that they did where they took um 
each of the contrast paints. They took a, they took one of the textured bases from GW, and then have basically like a matrix of like this is with Corax White, this is with the Wraithbone, and this is with Gracier, and then each of the three. Each each contrast paint on the base with with each of the three uh, undercoats, and you just look and you can see exactly what each contrast paint looks like when it goes over uh, the undercoats, and uh, that's incredibly helpful to see the variation and like the differences between using white versus gray versus off white. So mean, the website when you look at the contrast paints and scroll down will also have something similar to that, although you can't see see it like live it's it's just right the pictures yeah. but it does help showing how you can layer the different paints to get the desired colors you mm-hmm. want yeah it's just it was just super helpful to be able to like have it right there and be able to look and see exactly like come neck right next to the other ones like what the what the gradation and the variation is so other game stores that that want to sell contrast paints that that's a great idea please do that <laughs> mm-hmm because just being able to see it and see what effect you're going to get, it makes such a huge difference. Like when you buy a paint, it's like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I hope it's okay. Yeah. And so here's a case where you can actually see. No, yeah, more stores. And I know like when Contrast first dropped, a lot of people were posting pictures of something they did like that online where they'd have like mm-hmm. either the same model or base. Yeah, textured bases you'd see a lot of. And that does give a really good impression of how things will look. I mean, it's one like I use the GW paint app because they do the same kind of thing where like, here's this mod, like here's a space Marine backpack and we've painted it in like a, like a whole bunch of different color combinations. So you can see like, this is what you should expect with like at this step when you've done like the base color and a wash, this is what it looks like. And then when you add highlights, this is what it should look like. And that like visually helps me figure out, okay, what effect am I trying to get? What general tones of color should I be using? Mm-hmm. And it's a really useful tool. So yeah, anybody who does something like that is doing the community a big service. All right, so let's move away from paints and get into playing. And that's because uh, we were sent a preview copy of uh, the new Warzone Nephilim Grand Tournament Mission Pack by uh, from uh, GW. Uh, they sent us a copy to review. And uh, there's been a lot of reveals about this lately. And I think it's important that we talk about it because a lot of people do play, use the Grand Tournaments even for just like pickup matched play. And there's some major changes coming down the pipe. Now, some of them had been hinted at, and there's a couple that they've mentioned recently on the Games Workshop on the like the Warhammer community website. So uh, here are some of the changes that are going to be happening once we switch over to the second season of 2022. Uh, first off, as has been known for a while, command points that you start with are being cut in half. If you are playing a 2,000-point game, you are starting at 6 CP. But the trade-off is that during the game, you will generate a CP during each player's command phase, not merely your own. So you end up with more CP, or yeah, about the same amount of CP overall. And th- that that actual benefit, like the the both players gaining cp is actually on a mission by mission basis as a battleforge cp bonus it's not in the setup section of the book but yeah you end up you start with half as many cp so 6 cp and then you gain one during each player's command phase so you're going to gain in general 10 throughout the game so you end up like 
roughly with the same amount, maybe even more, because some players would spend a lot of points on their army build, and instead now they'll be getting generating their points during the game. So you should still have like roughly the same number of options throughout the game, but you will have a lot less to alpha strike with and get like combos right off the bat. But this does punish some armies who uh, want to like do multiple detachment builds. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, we just had the Knight Codexes dropped and we talked very much about how super heavy auxiliaries like free blades and dread blades would be very easy to drop in to other armies. And it seems like this is directly counter to that. However, there's one other thing. If a player's army includes one or more super heavy auxiliary detachments, they can change the command benefits of one of them to plus three command points. If the unit in this detachment is not your warlord, but has is from the same faction as your warlord's detachment, and that faction is not Chaos, Imperium, Eldari, or Tyranids, which also doesn't help Free Blades or Dread Blades, because that's the Imperium or Chaos is going to be the one thing you're sharing. <laughs> so I guess it means you can play a knight army and drop in a Free Blade for free, like as a free detachment. But that doesn't really I, I help. I think much. they said it was more designed for incursion, so you could have like one super heavy ox and drop in another super heavy ox for free. Right. Yeah. Which makes sense. Um, the, and then uh, also they do specify uh, chaos demons, allegiance keyword. Like you know when they spell out like what keywords have to be the same in your army allegiance keyword for chaos demons doesn't have to be the same uh dread blade and free blade keywords these units can have different selectable faction keywords and orc specialist mob units are the three caveats however there's one other change and i think this one has actually like from what i've seen has upset a number of people because it really changes up your your army building and that is that warlord traits and relics are no longer free. You get what you can pick one in your army without paying any extra CP from codex stratagems, but your free quote unquote warlord trait and free relic that you get are no longer free. There are requisition stratagems for gaining them now. And they do specify that you can only have army relics and warlord traits if you have used requisition stratagems which is the subclass of stratagem that all those codex specific versions fall under so yeah if you want a warlord trait that's a cp you want a relic that's a cp which means if you had an army right now that started off as just a battalion with your warlord in the battalion so you would have started with 12 cp originally you are now starting and and you you did nothing else. You bought no other pregame stratagems and you just shifted it over to um, to this mission packet. You would start the game with four CP because you would have your battalion would be free because your warlord's in it because you'd get the three CP back. And then you would spend one for your warlord trait and one for your for your relic. That's a big shift. That's a well, very big shift. <laughs> Rob, I can go with my Midwest Conquest one, which is not legal anymore because I had a knight detachment, the super heavy detachment. So I got all those CP backs. So I'm still at 12, but minus two for having the um, patrol because I had the Custodes patrol minus two because I, I decked out my um, Inquisitor with a 
CP or a warlord trait and a relic. Minus two more for giving the knight care, like making them characters to give them another CP and a relic. And then under the, so I'd be at zero except for this new change, which means for the base relic and warlord trait, I'd be paying two more. So I'd have spent eight as opposed to I'd just spent six before, meaning I'm at negative two to start the game. So I'd have to figure something else out. Right. Which would probably be the dropping of a relic and a warlord trait. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you have cases like, I have a Death Guard army, I have Mortarian, I like running Mortarian in my Death Guard army. That army, if it's a battalion and a su- <clears throat> and a Supreme Command detachment with Mortarian in it, taking the battalion who that does not have my warlord in it costs me 3 CP. The Supreme Command detachment is free because it has my warlord in it. And then Mortarian has three warlord traits. That he has to have. And he has to be your warlord if he's in your army. Technically, he ends up with four because he starts with three and then he gets host of plagues where he gets one of the diseases. But that's Mm -hmm. at the start of the first battle round, so I don't think you'd have to pay CP for it. It's like a special rule on top of it. But yeah, there will probably be an FAQ that will address this, but it's not great. And yeah, it's like anybody who's been using like the the in com- and again, this is in competitive play. Although most people use yep. grand tournament, the grand tournament packet for all of all their games. So this, which is why you're also seeing people claiming that this is a bait and switch because one of the big selling points of ninth edition was more command points. Well, so my my hope with this is like you're you're absolutely right. Like oh my god, now I'm it makes it a lot harder for me to be able to take you know, Dean's units and certain things. I think it's actually the point. Like, no, we want most to make it. Yeah. We want, we want to drive people to take certain types of units and things like that at tournaments because they're more, you know, to try to cut down on some of the, the, the more obnoxious combos and stuff like that. And then the other part of this, and maybe this is actually what they're trying to do or what the reaction will be. Again, if you're playing a pickup game, you don't have to freaking use the tournament rules. You can just play match play and use the book rules. So, like, maybe this actually, like, starts to divide that where, no, the tournament rules are only for tournament play and then matched rules and pickup games can just use the core rules. Like, it's... Uh, I, the the fact that the default assumption is the fact that we have to use the current compet- you know tournament rules... That's that's a faulty assumption. And I get it. Like, if you're playing practice games for a tournament, sure, you want to use the tournament rules. But if I just go to the store on a Friday night to play a pickup game, I don't have to play the tournament rules. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it's kind of a it's, – it's always been a kind of a blind spot in, in the community. And part of that is because competitive play does, draw, uh, does drive a yeah. lot of activity at – at, like at store games and pickup games most yeah. a lot of people not all absolutely not all but a lot of people who are playing pickup games are wanting to practice for a tournament or they're sure. you know kind sure. of refine themselves for a tournament so i understand why that and that's been a, a thing i've always brought up and it's it's an aspect of all forms of of gaming that i dislike but it, you see it in you see it in card games you see it in <laughs> tabletop war games um, I think because we don't have a lot of board game tournaments, you don't see it there necessarily. But it's like anything where like two random people are going to meet up and play a game, you tend to see this because it's it's like the least common denominator. And so it, it's 
it's one of those things where like i'm really on board with like arbor to ian's idea of an open play mission pack that is just a really streamlined stripped down version that lets people play the game but without necessarily you know just play the kind of game that they want to play and part of that is that conversation we have to have as players but some other things that this does is it shifts the focus over to more named characters than build your own characters because named characters can't take a relic named characters you, you know like you don't have to give them a warlord trait but if they take one you know what it's going to be because it's fixed um also characters like Azrael, bobby G- or not bobby g so much Azrael, uh, marnius calgar uh though they both give you two extra command points if they're your warlord so those characters can get well, like people taking those characters will get a boost like we might see dark angel armies get a little bit of a boost just by having more stuff to play if they take Azrael. If somebody takes Marnius Calgar, Ultramarine armies might get a little bit of a boost. Um, uh, anything that can help you regen command points uh, will be worth its weight in gold because you'll be starting with a much smaller pool. So anything you can get back is is good. But it is it is definitely going to sh- change up things. And yeah, it does cut down on some of the I'm going to massively load load up my army with like a bunch of superheroes that I've built with like everybody's got a relic and everybody's got a stratagem and it does make people have to make decisions on how much do I really need this particular relic to change the game and I kind of like relics having an opportunity cost to take Mm -hmm. like I don't I don't dislike the concept I think with the cutting command points in half it's a it's a little bit of a gut punch I, I will say that well, and I think the other big part of it too is is it's definitely trying to cut down on those like alpha strike combinations that you see. Like we'll we'll talk about it in here in a minute, but um, you know, one of the listener letters, like like oh, I you know, two hundred shots from an elder army on top of turn one. Well, they did that because they were able to like chain link a bunch of things and then play use a bunch of command points, play this strategy, and do this, and you just won't be able to do that as often. You'll still be able to make strategic moves and stuff like that. But instead of just alpha striking someone off the table at top of one and crippling their army and winning the game five minutes in, now you actually have to play the game, which, yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Uh, There's also one other change that snuck into uh, the uh, step 10 on setup, and that's declaring reserves and transports. Um, if you take a dedicated transport, it must start the battle with a unit embarked inside it. If you don't, that unit can't, the transport cannot be set up and is counted as destroyed. Huh. Hmm. I guess I didn't so, think about that because I've always put people in transports if I was going to take a right. transport. Right. But, uh, think about the days of like Razorback. I mean, granted, that's oh, yeah. old, but, <laughs> but, you know, we were seeing like Raider spam with, yeah. uh, like Dark Eldar not that long ago. Raider spam because raiders were way undercosted, so people were taking a whole bunch of raiders and not necessarily putting units in them. Um, now that's that's a no no. Like you, if you're going to take a dedicated transport, which I think is fair because dedicated transport doesn't really take up a, a force org slot. Yeah, and it's not considered a like once upon a time they were a unit upgrade. And then they became just a slot that you could take. You could take one per other army slot you had filled. And now it's like, yes, you can still take one, but you it better be dedicated to somebody because otherwise it just doesn't exist anymore. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and like, uh, while Dennis, you liked loading people into transports, a lot of people liked running empty wave serpents because wave serpents were one of the best tanks in the Eldar army. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. That it's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to bother putting anybody in here. I've got a twin link bright lance. I've got a serpent shield, and uh, you know, it's like I don't need anything else. I'm good. That and that's kind of a holdover from the days when the Falcon was absolutely useless instead of being a drop pod like it is now. Oh my gosh, and <laughs> you still can't find them. I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> uh, and then on top of that, all the uh, all the secondary objectives got uh, revised, and they really want you to take faction specific ones because every category like remember like in the previous pack there'd be like four or five options per category and then you'd have your faction specific ones on top of that now for example purge the enemy has two assassination and bring it down no mercy no respite has two grind them down and no prisoners Warpcraft still has three, and that's just because there aren't, I think there aren't as many factions that have Warpcraft strats, or Warpcraft uh, secondaries. Uh, Battlefield Supremacy has two, behind enemy lines and engage on all fronts. Shadow Operations has two, raise the banners high and retrieve Nephilim data. So they kind of looked at it like nobody else is, nobody's taking all these other ones, so let's just get it down to what people are actually picking, and then encouraging people to take a faction secondary, although I believe you are still limited to one faction secondary. I thought I read on their website that faction secondaries are not limited anymore. Oh, no, yeah. Note that in Warzone, Warzone Nephilim games, players can now select up to three faction secondary objectives, provided all three are from different categories. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. they have absolutely changed that. And they list out in each category what the faction secondaries for that category are. So you have you have a list in each section. You don't have to like jump back and forth, although you do have to jump back and forth to actually read the definitions because all the secondaries have been reprinted here and updated. Not all of them have changed, but a lot of them have been revised. Some of them have been changed completely, especially like, hey, if you play Astra Militarum, you actually have a full set of them instead of just like the one they put in the last book. And that one is actually gone and been replaced with other stuff. But Guard actually has a set. Chaos Demons have a set. Oh, yeah. So, they, uh, speaking of, like, including all of these uh, secondary objectives and stuff in here, uh, I saw somewhere, I've heard that, like, they reprinted the core rules in this, too. Is that is that also the case? That is also the case. The oh, core rules <laughs> are, are reprinted in here. About the only complaint I have about this book is that it's not spiral bound. I don't think they're going to do that again. Sorry, Rob. Yeah. I, I wonder if the cost got a little prohibitive. Like Probably. as is, you could you could take this to like uh, FedEx Kinkos or any other print shop, and they'll spiral bind it for you. Like, just, so you can get it spiral bound. But yeah, it does have the the rules. Like the only thing it doesn't have is the army building rules because they generally don't reprint those in the tiny rule books. But yeah, it sure, does. Sure. It does have the core. Like the full core rules, like the basic rules, and like all the way up through the the glossary and all the rare and the most updated list of rare rules interactions. Which <sighs> remember when the rare rules interactions was like two pages? It is now mm. one, two, three, four, five, six. It is six pages in small print of <sighs> rules interactions, 
which uh, tells me that the rules are not as simplified as they might have yeah. intended them to be. Hey, but at least those interactions are there. Remember when some a-hole on this show was talking about how the rules bloat wasn't really wasn't really that bad prior on a previous episode? No, nope, <laughs> which asshole was that? Me or you? <laughs> I think it was me. It was me. You were yeah. arguing it was. I was like, ah, it's not that bad. And then I look at something like that, and I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not as bad as the Codex rules bloat, though. I'll, I'll, I'll dab. Sure. <laughs> and then yeah, there's revised and/or new missions for both thousand and two thousand point games. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I do find it interesting that every Space Marine chapter has, including the ones that just had supplements back in like the end of 8th edition like Imperial Fists, Raven Guard, Salamanders they have like one each. The ones that have their own full codexes like Space Wolves Blood Angels, Dark Angels, and Death Watch have like a full set of four. The Chaos Legions, so we're getting a preview of what's in uh, Codex Chaos Space Marines uh, have each have, they have like three generic ones and then each legion has their own including one for world eaters which is probably the same one that's in white dwarf if they put one in there which yeah, is skulls for the yeah. skull throne yes yeah that that was in there the one that requires you to uh issue challenges what edition of the game is this kevin because oh god uh, that's is that not a six thing. is that sixth, sixth edition seventh? yeah oh my god i hated that Ugh. i really hope that's not back <laughs> It's it's not a the mechanical thing. It's like you pick one of your characters and you pick one of their characters. The challenge is issued, and then if you kill them, you get okay. I can deal with that. I can yeah. live with that. Five victory points <laughs> if they were destroyed. Five victory more if they were destroyed in a melee attack, and five more if they were killed by the unit that issued the challenge. So, which is pretty like we've seen yeah. strats like that before. It's not a big thing. Yeah. I've seen that uh, uh, secondary objectives like that. So Karn's going to go so, character killing. Got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So like overall, I think I don't think it's a bad mission pack. I think it is going to massively change up how people approach army building and how they pick secondaries. I'm curious to see how this shakes out. I don't know if I'm going to uh, end up playing in any events anytime soon. I missed my chance to buy a ticket for um, show me showdown and Real confession time, after having played in the friendly at Midwest Conquest, that's kind of the only kind of event, that narrative that I want to play in anymore. I just, I just, I don't, I don't feel, I don't have the competitive spirit anymore, I guess. It's it's not in me. You know, all, you know, cool for the people who, who, who enjoy that. I am not feeling it as much anymore. I don't know if I ever felt it that strongly, but I definitely don't now. And I don't know if that's what two years of pandemic have done to me or what. Well, I think I think we were kind of phasing away from that towards the end of like seventh edition anyway, just because like the way the game is played has changed and what we're trying to get out of it is different. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy I enjoyed competitive eighth edition. I, I, I enjoyed going to eighth edition events. I had fun. I've only played in a couple of ninth edition competitive events and I didn't, well, I've played in one fairly competitive because it was just like a grand opening tournament at a local store. And then I played in the friendly, which I don't consider to be a competitive event by the mm-hmm. nature of it being a friendly event. Um, but like, I feel like that is scratching the itch for me in a way that like going to the big tournaments isn't my thing, yeah. but yeah, 
but but I will definitely still try. I still want to try this out. I want to be able, you know, be fluent in it. So if I do end up in games where people want to play this, I can absolutely, you know, play in that in that set. But yeah, it's I don't know if it's my thing. But uh, I'm curious to I, I will be interested to see how this shakes out. And a lot of the events that are coming up have already announced they are switching over to this packet. So um, it seems like GW doing this as a seasonal thing is catching on pretty quickly because well, absolutely people could choose to say, now nah, we're going to we're going to use Nachmund and stick with that. And they're not. So, well, and like you said, Rob, this shakes things up. Um, and I think having a six month shakeup of how the game is played is kind of a good thing. Cause for mm-hmm. those people, especially that play one faction, the game and how you build your armies changes. So it, it's going to keep mm-hmm. it fresher longer. Yeah. Uh, an environment that is in not constant flux, but in like it has seasonal seasonal shakeups is a healthier environment overall because yeah, it doesn't get static though the way that we've seen like in past editions where like, Oh, well the game is just like this now until the next really powerful thing comes out. And so being able to shake this up, we'll see if it, if it can pry uh Tyranids off their, their perch of dominance. I don't know because I don't think that's necessarily the thing. That, I, I don't yeah. think the CPs were what made Tyranids good. No, I think mortal wounds is what made Tyranids good. Yeah. Which they've already started trying to address that, so we'll see if it, we'll see what this does. But um, I'm 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 excited, even if it's not necessarily my environment to play in. I'm I'm excited to see what happens with it. Ah, speaking of of tournaments and questions about that, we are transitioning over to listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listener, and we'll tell you how you can get your letter read on the air at the end of the segment. We have one letter. Um, that, and this is actually a letter that originally came in in April and just got missed in, uh, like, I think in the midst of doing the two-part Codex Eldari uh, review, we kind of missed this one. And fortunately, he wrote back to us with a follow-up and kind of an expansion of the question. So there's a, there's a couple of parts of this. Uh, this is from Gary Marchant. Or I don't know if that's Marchant or Marchant. Um, I'm going to go with Marchant because it amuses me more to say it that way. And if that's incorrect, I apologize. Gary writes, the Gary part I'm pretty clear on, but uh, Gary writes, hello to you all. I have a question and figured as you are currently desperate for hot fan content, which we still are because this is our only letter, this would be my best chance. Question one, I have played in two very relaxed tournaments, but I'm finally making the step up to an official ITC one. What tips can you give me so that I can avoid being the type of player others want to avoid? What should I do to make sure I don't upset anyone by slowing things down or breaking some unbroken rule? Uh, Observation, I'm English, but I play 40k in Mexico where I've lived for 12 years and I've noticed a curious thing I wanted to bring to your attention. While around 10% of Mexicans speak English, I have found that when you play 40k, the percentage increase to around 80%. I suspect this is because the latest news and updates are always released in English, so players have no choice but to learn English if they want to be able to stay up to date. Have you ever noticed any regional or national differences in 40k players? Uh, P.S. In my first Mexican tournament, I played as Ultramarines and won after going 3-0. In my second tournament, I played as Blood Angels and came in 15th with a 2-2 record. For the Jalisco Open in May, I will be playing as Dark Angels because I am very fickle. And then his update. 
Uh, an up because he he wrote back to us in May around the time of Midwest Conquest. An update: I have now played ten tournament games, and every single player has spoken English. I wonder if this is because 40k is an expensive hobby, and therefore players are more likely to have money for classes, or if it's due to them wanting access to the rules ASAP. That's uh, we'll talk about that. I just finished my first competitive ITC, and it was a very mixed bag. I came up against an Eldar army that could put out 200 shots a turn and then fall back out of range. The game was pretty much over by the end of turn two. My second game was against a non-metatalist and was really fun with me winning 80 to 68 with 15 of the points coming on the last turn. My third game was against a Tyranidalist that had a Harpy, six Zoanthropes, and a Neurothrope. The game started okay until he proceeded to cast Smite five times a turn. Turn two, 26 mortal wounds from Smite. Turn three, 19 mortal wounds from Smite. Turn four, 15 mortal wounds from Smite wiping out my last troops. I found the first and third games incredibly boring as I had nothing to do except sit back and see how many of my Deathwing died each turn. Is this my fault for not embracing a win-at-all-costs meta-chasing attitude for choosing a Deathwing army which lacks movement, or for expecting players at a competitive tournament to play in a more casual-slash-friendly way? So, let, let's take this from... <laughs> the, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so let's take <laughs> let's take this from the top. Uh, first is first question. Um, what tips can you give me so I can avoid being the type of player others want to avoid? What should I do to make sure I don't upset anyone by slowing things down or breaking some unspoken rule? Uh, the The biggest things I've found is even in a tournament setting. Um, I mean, when it, when you're in a competitive event, you you are playing to to win, and that is mm-hmm. like. I mean, any game you're playing with the goal of eventually winning, but I mean, when you're in a competitive event, your goal is to outcompete your opponent. Like that is that is the reason you are there, and part of that is being fair to your opponent. So you don't like don't be the kind of player that's going to hem and haw a lot and burn up time. And you're really only, especially if you're in an event that uses chess clocks, so you're only punishing yourself at that point. But Try not to slow play. Know your army inside and out. And I think switching factions for every event as someone who does it all the time is not good for that. <laughs> like if you want yeah. to, if you're playing at a tournament, know your army as inside and out as you can. Be conscientious, be friendly, but also don't indulge in a lot of table talk unless your opponent is, has kind of approached you for it. You know, just kind of just just be chill. Laugh when things go badly cheer when your opponent has uh, pulls off something cool even if it if it you know if it's what's going to beat you like have like know that the game is at its heart intended to be fun and part of how people have fun sometimes is playing competitively but like that's to be the kind of person you would want to play against i mean it's the golden rule and it's it's absolutely true yeah for sure and i i think that uh I think the big one there, you know, is is know your army inside and out. We've talked about this multiple times before that there's a lot that goes into list building codexes, you know, this game. You shouldn't be expected to know every opponent's intricacies of their armies, but you need to know yours. So, like, that's the most frustrating thing. If you're, if you're at a game and you're, you know, on chess clocks, you're in a competitive event, and you don't know what your units do that's that's going to be frustrating to your opponent um so know your army know your list inside and out know as much about the armies that you're going to play against as you can but you know and that's 
you know, listening to, say, podcasts that do codex reviews or reading websites that do, you know, faction overviews, stuff like that, just so that you're kind of familiar with what what, uh, armies are capable of. You don't have to be an expert in every army because we do a podcast about this and we're not experts in every army. Uh, As we're going to talk about later when we uh, go over Gene Steeler cults and I'm just going to shut up for like 45 minutes and not say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I, I think knowing your army and then just being, you know, being chill about playing like that's that's going to help. And, you know, if you your opponent can tell if you're having a good time or not. And, you know, sure, it's easier to have a good time when you're winning, but if you can have a good time while you're losing, that's also going, you know, that's your opponent will know that we'll, we'll be able, you know, can pick up on that. Yeah, absolutely. And like one thing I've found that helps, like if I'm in a, in a game where I'm absolutely on the back foot is to try to find like, a, I mean, still try to accomplish your, your in-game objectives, but also sometimes find that little thing you can do that's a moral victory like, I remember uh, the first game of Midwest Conquest when I'm playing against Dennis, and <laughs> Dennis, you're just, like, rolling me with knights, but I, like, finally killed one of your your big knights with the, the I think it was the Crusader, or was it a Warden that had the uh, Gatling, the, the Adventure Gatling I hand, but I, fi- but I finally killed it, like, at the end, like, one of my units, like, I think in a suicide attack, killed it, and it's like, Okay, I I did a thing. I did a thing that I... And then I realized I had ditched the objective that would have given me points for doing it, but I still did it, and it still felt good to do it. So sometimes joyful spite can take you a long way (laughs) in enjoying the game. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, I've done that a lot of look for moral victories in things. So. Yeah, it's like you, you try to make the best of a bad situation, find a way to kind of to like once the game is once it's very clear that you're not winning the game, do your best to have fun with it, because at that's all you can do at that point. But also, you know, it just it really comes down. Don't be a dick. That's you want to be the kind of player that other people want to play with. Don't be a dick. That's that's the easiest way. And unfortunately, there's a number of competitive players who are dicks. And but there's a lot of them that aren't. And there's also yeah. some of them who are they are absolutely fun to hang around with and talk shop with. And then when you get them in the game, it's all business. And you just mm-hmm. have to be ready, like, like read the room and know what kind of person you're playing against and know that if somebody is switching to all business mode, they're not necessarily they're not necessarily being dicks. And there's a difference. And you can tell. You see it more, especially in later games. Like, the first round is generally going to be pretty light, no matter who you play against. But as it gets... Especially as if you start climbing the bracket, it's going to be harder and harder. And that's just the nature of competition. So, Which I think that leads into the... When you go to an ITC or competitive event, the majority of the people, at least half or a little over half, are there to, like win and they'll have like the medalists so i still say play what you want but just have the expectation if you're not on one of the cutting edge i'm going to win at all cost lists um you'll probably be in the bottom half of the the tournament and just go in with your own expectations of what am i there for am i there to get in some games and try and have fun knowing that some of the games might I might get rolled because my list isn't meta or am I there to try and take out the medalist with either another medalist or something that might be a meta counter 
that you want to try out and just, I don't know, it's sort of like set your own expectations now that you kind of know what the environment is like. Absolutely. And and speaking of the environment, uh, you know, asking about like noticing uh, regional or national differences in 40K players. um, In the past, I have like when we first went to Renegade, um, (laughs) that was a huge shock for us because our local meta was very different than the way people were playing up there. (laughs) Now, I will say, I think the growth of the competitive online community has homogenized that a lot. I think the meta is now, especially as, you know, people travel around to more and more events and the, you know, lists are reported like almost immediately from like, and with the addition of tools like BCP, where you can follow an army list and see how it's performing among multiple players. Um, I think we've kind of seen the homogenate homogenization of the local meta, but I do think that there is in general, a difference on how people in different areas are more likely to play the game. And one thing I have found, and it's not a hundred percent always thing because there's plenty of competitive players, but I, in, in like Europe and England, but I've gathered that in general, a lot of European players are more of the, like the more they're more casual in general, but there's still some like really hardcore competitive players there. So it's not a across the board thing. I, I think American players, at least in tournament settings, tend to be like the hard, more hardcore competitive type. I can't speak for any like and I base that base that off the fact that I have played people who are Australian and I have played people who are English. I have played people, I think, from Sweden in the uh the LVO friendly a couple of years ago. Mm. Like I've, I've played a number of people from around the world, but I've also been playing them often in contexts where it's not always the most competitive, but I think there, there are differences in how people approach the game. Now, as far as like why people in Mexico who play 40 K speak English more, I don't, real hesitant to say that's due to the fact that they're richer players and so can speak English. Um, that, that's, that, that's a, I find that no offense, but I find it a little problematic, but, uh, um, I do think it's because it's probably, because I like, I don't, I don't know how much of a presence, like I know they do release Spanish product, but I think they primarily do that in Spain. Just like they release mm. French product, but primarily in France. <laughs> I don't know if there's like a Mexican web store. And in fact, yeah, you look at the like the languages all the web stores are in. Australia, English, Belgian, English, Belgian, French, Canadian, English, Canadian, French, Denmark, English, Deutschland, German, Spain, Spanish, Finland, English, France, French, Ireland, English, Italian, Italy has Italian, Japan has English, even though they release products with Japanese text, Uh, Netherlands, English, New Zealand, English, Norway, English, Poland, English, the rest of the EU, English. Yeah, they don't, uh, the web store for everything that's, you know, the rest of the world is in English, which means that's the products they're going to be selling, which means if you're buying 40k product in Mexico, um, you probably will need to speak English to get a whole lot out of it and because they don't ship the Spanish stuff there from the sound of it. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that I think that is definitely the driving 
driving part of it is that yeah, it's a it's an English company. They release the bulk majority of their rules to the world in English. So yeah, if you want to play, you need to be able to read English. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I, I think. It's more a matter of yeah, just just the group that is playing 40k has to speak English because that's the only way they can get the rules because that's what's being shipped to them. That's what's being presented to them. I'm like, I'm not even sure. I mean, Games Workshop, uh, Mexico City. I mean, I don't know. If- <laughs> the other the other thing I will say, you know, and, and I don't want to, I definitely don't want to step in a landmine or anything about trying to make broad, broad assumptions about the socioeconomic situation in the United States or Mexico. But I will say this, that if you're going to a competitive event, people that are traveling to events building armies, painting them, you know, staying up on the competitive meta. They, you know, we see this in in USA events. These are people that are more willing to spend money to travel. So there probably is a socioeconomic element to this where, yeah, the people that are willing to go travel to a large event probably, you know, probably do have more disposable income, more ability to learn a second language, things like that. But yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense, but I don't know if that's necessarily a direct cause as much as the fact that, yeah, Games Workshop is an English company and they release most everything in English. Yeah, so I I just did a search. I picked Mexico City and I did a search for give me all the game stores that sell GW product within 100 kilometers because that's as as large as the uh, their search product goes. The nearest Warhammer store, the nearest official Games Workshop store is Warhammer Corpus Christi in Texas which is 937 kilometers away. <laughs> Otherwise, looking at the the number of, or like the stores that are listed, which this, I think the furthest one is is actually 99 kilometers away. Uh, there's a store named Expectrum, a store named Let's Play, a store named Valhalla Hobbies and Games Mexico, a store called Red Queen, a store called uh, Dragon's Hole, Quest Hobbies, uh, Master of War, Fire Anvil, Quantum Board Games. You'll notice that all these names are in English. Uh, one called Coffee and Dragon. There's like two, Noveno Reino and Gamesmart de Mexico uh, that are in clearly in Spanish. And then there's a couple like Calisti and Wantola that, oh, here's Caravana de Ismil uh, that is also in Spanish, but most of these stores are in English as well. So it's like, I think the audience for Mexican board gamers is primarily like board and table gamers is primarily in English. So that would probably explain it. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I guess kind of unrelated, but I know that I was listening to, uh, I forget which podcast it was, but they were talking about, uh, Dungeons and Dragons in other, you know, in other cultures and like, yeah, in other in other locations and like they were talking to someone from brazil and they're like yeah we we can't get dungeons and dragons in portuguese we only get it in english so everyone that plays dungeons and dragons also knows you know speaks english and because we learned it to play the game so mm-hmm. you know it it is very interesting i think how that um how that that kind of drives the the, the culture around these games and i think that's just part of it i think of the fact that it is said an English company, you know, and the bulk of their the bulk of their customer base speaks English. So, yeah, I think people kind of just adapt to that. Yeah, it's like, okay, so I'm on the I went to the Quest Hobbies website, which is a game store in Mexico City, Mexico. 
Um, the menu has a couple of like their website menu has a section called Novedades, which is all their new games. And that like if you want to pre-order, it's pre-order abierta. But you look at the list of products and like, hey, you can buy the uh, Warhammer 40,000 Black Templars army set in English. But the Kill Team Octarius box set's available in Spanish. The Age of, Age of Sigmar Fury of the Deep is listed as Age of Sigmar Fury of the Deep Spanish, but the product picture they have is Furia de las Profundidad. So a number of their, but a lot of their products are in English. So yeah, it's, that's the market. That's the games they can get. Like I'm, like books and cards start here. Uh, they do sell. They sell the books that so they can get them in Spanish. And it looks like they sell most of the their books in both English and Spanish versions, depending on what somebody feels better using. But yeah, so it sounds like it's a it's a market that is bilingual actually which yeah gosh if, i wish there was more i wish i could speak more than one Engl- one language i barely speak english right yeah as someone who, yeah someone who can barely speak my native language <laughs> yeah it's like i i mean gary is probably speaking spanish way better than i do and he's not even spanish but he's been in mexico for 12 you know living there for 12 years i imagine you have to know spanish to be able to function in society decently so I, I get, especially when we get non-native English speakers writing in, they're like, "I'm sorry, English isn't my native language." I'm like, "You're doing way better than I am." But so, <laughs> yeah, you're fine. But yeah, so getting over to kind of his last point of, is it my fault for not embracing that attitude? I, I, I don't say I wouldn't say losing your games and not having a good time is your fault. I don't think there's fault to be had. You know, I, it's yeah. like. You went into a competitive event, you brought an army that you hoped would be competitive, but you also played against a couple of the strongest army builds right now. Yeah, yeah you're going to have, it's going to be a bad time. That's that's just how that's going to shake out. You've played against Nids. You weren't likely to win. Nobody was likely to win other than another Nids player or maybe a Tau or Eldari player who's playing playing to the strengths and trying to to play build a specifically to be able to beat nids it's like yeah you probably weren't going to win those games anyway did you make a mistake by expecting players at a competitive tournament to play more casually yes that and just because that's not the environment for that kind of event if you want to play at a friendly event you have to either find a dedicated friendly event or Find friends to play with people who are on the same page. That's that is just the nature of a tournament. You go to a competitive ITC tournament, you're going to play competitive ITC players who are going to play their hardest, and that's just yeah. the nature of the beast. Well, and I think that's why, like, it's important for you know events to also include narrative events, friendly events, you know, other other type of events to try to pull players in and let them have. You know, let them be able to to play in a tournament experience, you know, uh, environment, but not, you know, be not have to be like all in it. You know, in the, from the competitive perspective, to be like, okay, I have to do it this way. It's like no, like more. You're seeing more and more events do this, and and I think it's a good trend of, you know, we're gonna do a narrative campaign. We're going to have a friendly event. We're going to do kill team. We're going to do night joust. Like we're going to put other things available so people can come and play and have a good time and not necessarily have to play that specific way. And uh, I I think that's, I think that's a good trend. Mm -hmm. I will say though, like, um, 
you know, the first time you go to like these big competitive ITC events, and I, I, I feel this exact exact example very much. You're going to bring things that you think are cool. You're not going to be know know the meta. You're not going to be necessarily prepared for like what you see at these events, and you're going to have a couple of games where you just get blown off the table. I I lost my second game at Renegade Open in like 20 minutes against an Eldar list that just shot me off the board. Like it it happens. You learn from it. Next time I came back, I took a different list, and I had you know I was thinking about like okay, these are the types of lists that show up here. So what can I do to mitigate that? And you adjust and you, you you change up what you're taking and you know you'll have a better experience next time but it happens to everyone <laughs> yeah yeah there are games where you are just gonna get rolled and there's not much you can do about it like you know it we're in an environment right now where alpha strike is still really strong so yeah maybe that eldar army you know if you put yourself out where they could get to you um yeah, maybe they did put out just a ton of shots and slaughter you early on, and that's going to happen. And alpha strikes are no fun for anybody, and it's poor game balance that is is part of what makes it possible. Games Workshop has been trying several things to try to address that, hence, you know, we're seeing Warzone Nephilim coming out, which hopefully addresses some of the, the like, the uber turns that people can pull off, um, which will be healthier for the game. And but yeah, it's it's a rough start to like your first like going to your first competitive event and just playing somebody who's building a list to hope to win that event and they just absolutely roll you. Yeah, it sucks. It's hard. It stings. But you you take your lumps and you kind of move forward and you decide like I I wouldn't quit after your first competitive event. I would give it like two or three. Try to like refine what you're doing. Over over three events, that's going to be like three large events is going to be somewhere between 10 to 15 games and see what you can do. Like take what happened in your first event. And it sounds like it was a, a three game tournament, which is a small one. Like take what you learned from that. Figure out like, you know, what what could I have done differently? Is there anything I could could have done differently? Can I play this in such a way to try to drag this out a bit, not not to slow play, but like he talks about how like in the Nid game he went at least four turns before like or you know he got at least three turns of play before his army was wiped out, and it's like what were you doing in those turns? Because was there any way you could at least lower their damage output to um, to stop them? Maybe it's a matter of you need to take. Uh, couple of librarians you know it's like you know maybe you or maybe you just like know like okay when the game starts i have to kill this thing this thing and this thing and i have a few units that are acceptable losses while i work on killing that thing you know it's like you 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 build that up over time uh and if you're like if you're going to be playing in competitive events you it's not necessarily meta chasing but like you said kevin you need to kind of be aware of what other people are running out there and exactly. so you don't get caught flat-footed. So it's just there's like I said, there's a lot to unpack in this letter, and it really we've all been there. We've all been that first-time tournament player who has a couple of bad games. It happens. The biggest thing is I've played against people who once they get to like turn two or turn three and they realize the game is not going their direction, get real sour and unfun to play against. Do not be that person try very hard not to be that person 
be the kind of person where, like I said, you you go with it, you laugh with it, because at this point, like if things are going badly, now the pressure is off. You know you aren't going to come back. Try to find those little victories that you can. Be like, yeah, that character over there, yeah, screw that guy, he's dead. I'm, I'm, I don't care if I win this game. That's my new goal. If I kill that guy, then I won in my heart. Or this unit that has been shooting me, well, I'm going to just pull, I'll pour all my firepower into them and try to wipe them out. It won't win me the game, but it'll make me feel better and I can go home knowing that I, I did something I set out to do. Like that's, sometimes that's, that is all it's going to take. Or like, I'm going to try to get that objective over there. If I can get somebody onto that objective, even if I die, I, I did a thing. But just find those moments and like, don't let yourself be sour. And especially don't go into your next game starting with the, oh, I'm going to lose this game. I'm going to lose this game. I will say, at at the friendly at Midwest, in five, I played five games. Four of them, my opponent rolled a six on initiative. <laughs> so, like, and the one game that I didn't that they that I got first turn on, I lost. But I was just like on round four. I'm like, hey, I finally get to go first in a game. This is great. <laughs> but I didn't do it in the um, never get to go first. You know, just I laughed about it because it was funny. Yeah. But I still, you know, and I was, I think going into that match, I was one and two. So it wasn't like I was going to win, win big or anything. But I still had a good time, you know, that I did not let myself have a bad time. And that's yeah. that's the most yeah. important thing. Don't let yourself have a bad time because of what happens on the tabletop, because sometimes you just won't win. And that's fine. And if you have a letter you'd like to write into us, and now is a perfect time because we are currently devoid of mail. So please send us send us your letters um there are three good ways to get your letter read on the air first is you can email us our email addresses are our first names at preferredenemies.com. so rob at kevin at dennis at richard at preferredenemies.com, or our first names one word at preferredenemies.com. uh second we are on facebook you can go to facebook.com slash preferred enemies uh like us there follow us uh we post episode updates i'll get back to posting more news and news reactions uh as more things come out um and third is we are on twitter at twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular um you can follow us on all three you can uh you can contact us on all three of those and we take our messages collate them together get them in the hopper and read as many as we can in an episode as i said we are currently empty so we are accepting submissions if you want your letter read on the next episode get it in now uh second is also we have a Patreon if you want to help support the show and what we do. Uh, we uh, basically use it as an online tip jar. Uh, is uh, no, We don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall. And uh, it's just a way, like, if you want to help support the show, which does things like pay for our hosting for our episodes, pay for our recording service that we're using, replace microphones uh, for uh you know as gear gear breaks down sometimes electronics go bad uh, so we've replaced that microphones from time to time it helps defray the cost of traveling to events uh thanks to our listeners we were able to cover uh, like a day's worth of rooms for kevin and dennis to stay in kansas city for the midwest conquest so those like those costs help us 
bring the show to you. And uh, this is not like a money making venture. We don't profit. <laughs> like we don't. We're happy to break even. Uh, and but if you want to help support the show, um, if you have the funds to do so, we ask that you first, of course, uh, find charities in your area that you can help support and use your wargaming powers for awesome but after that if you still want to support the show even if it's just a dollar a month enough people put in a dollar it really does help out so that you can go to prefer or you can go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies to find us there and help support the show we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification and when we come back we're going to be talking about 10 things you need to know about gene stealer cults finally see you in a bit Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a game mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding G-board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is 10 things you need to know about Gene Stealer Cults. Uh, we are finally getting around to reviewing the Gene Stealer Cult Codex, which came out in what, December or January? Like, it's been a while. Yeah. And we kept pushing yeah. it off and pushing it off. Six months late's fine. <laughs> Six, yeah, we got around to it. We're just setting expectations for the Guard Codex. That's all. You know, yep. whenever it mm. finally comes out, we don't have to talk about it for a while. Um, <laughs> Well, because, because of some so of the good. things in this book, I'm going to have to buy it. Well, yeah, yeah, and because of, like... Well, because of some of the things that aren't in this book. <laughs> yeah, I had to... <laughs> yeah, some things that aren't in this book, and some of the things that were in, like, Kill Team recently, I'm going to have to buy a Guard Codex. But it's not related to Gene Stealer Cults in any way, shape, or form. But, but yeah, so, I, obviously, before we get into the actual top ten, like, the ten things gameplay-wise, what do you... What, is a gene stealer cult who are the gene stealer cults well 
as the name might suggest, they are related to the gene stealers from the Tyranids. And that's because gene stealers are basically the advanced vanguard of a Tyranid invasion. And what a gene stealer can do, especially if it's just like one solo gene stealer running around, is basically they can start infecting people with gene stealer genes which you know i'm going to be saying the word gene a lot in this section but they can basically uh like give people like what are they called the genes it's uh like it's the gene stealer curse yeah it's i've it's referred to as a kiss sometimes yeah yeah the gene stealer kiss so basically they will tar- like the lone gene stealer will start like sneaking around a place and find people to hypnotize. It'll grab them, hypnotize them, and then stick an ovipositor in them because we're getting into real body horror f- mode now. And basically implant cells into them that will cause any offspring, which they are now hypnotically encouraged to try to produce will cause their their offspring to be gene stealer hybrids which look at least in that first generation about as good as you'd expect <laughs> but they're also unquestioningly loyal to their and protective of both their offspring and the gene stealer that started the uh the invasion and that particular gene stealer will tend to grow to be very large and become known as a patriarch you know, a, a a large, deadly, psychically active creature. And the people who have been hypnotized and implanted and their offspring and their offspring's offspring and their offspring's offspring's offspring will g- grow in number and will be fanatically loyal to that creature and to each other. And this is all in the hopes of weakening a planet so that when the Tyranid biofleet arrives that these creatures, these cultists will be like just genetically and hypnotically programmed to try to bring like make everything available so that the Tyranids don't have to fight so hard and in the Imperium that has manifested in the idea of cults of the star children coming to liberate us from the yoke of the impressive or from the oppressive imperium and we will wa- we will welcome them with open arms for the day of ascension when we shall ascend with them which is technically not a lie that is technically <laughs> not a lie it's just because that they will be doing it in the form of goo <laughs> right up a capillary tower yep because invariably what happens is like the cult upright either the cult uprising happens on its own as the the Tyranid fleet approaches or sometimes the 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 local powers will be tipped off early that the that the cult is forming and thus the cult will sometimes have to kick things off early and fight for survival so that they can spread to other worlds but but like in the case of the Tyranid uprising, the the cults will arrive or like the, the cult will rise up, 
Uh, and also, like, they will have infiltrated parts of society. A lot of times, these cults start in the labor class, like among my, and especially you see this in the modeling and in the fluff, a lot of miners, uh, miners and other, you know, manual laborers. The, the third and fourth generations of gene stealer cultists and those who've been hypnotized to be loyal to them can infiltrate groups pretty easily. And in a Imperium where there's a fair number of abhumans and people who are like real close to human, but have very minor mutations. If the biggest thing you have is you're kind of bald and you have a little, couple little ridges above your nose um, or on your forehead, nobody really pays that much attention and hats and bandanas and helmets can cover a lot of that nobody really notices and you will seem like an absolutely loyal member of the imperium the whole time until it's time to kick things off and then like planetary defenses will find themselves sabotaged guard detachments will turn on each other workers will rise up and their weird mutant older generations and will will rise up along with them and just flood the planet with with this insurrection that will cripple the planet's defenses and purge the planet of unbelievers and then the star children show up and the nids land on the make planet fall the cultists are all ready to greet them, and then it turns into an absolute horror show as they suddenly realize that they are just fodder like everyone else. The patriarch turns on them. The the bio beasts just start devouring them, and so, sometimes they will just give themselves willingly. Sometimes they just they will try to fight back in shock. It never goes well. <laughs> No, nope. I don't think there's ever a case of a gene gene stealer cult successfully repelling a tiered invasion. It just doesn't happen. No, no. the 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 biggest thing about this aspect of the cult, where the turn happens, is that it's almost an important part of continuing to spread the cult because. The fastest, which are generally the pure strains, are generally the only ones that can escape and like any sort of like civilian like evacuation that happens from the planet. Those gene sealer cult, those gene sealer pure, pure strains will stow away and get carried off to other planets. And then become a new patriarch and start a new cult and just start the whole cycle over again. Yes. So it, it's all very intentional by design. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the gene stealer cults, because they're, because gene stealers themselves are, are psychically active and the patriarch is especially so, I don't think that the cultists realize that they are becoming a psychic beacon that just draws the hive tendril closer to them. Right. But they'd be perfectly happy with it until it happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's an ingenious design, in all honesty. And, uh, there's, it also seems to work very well with humanity. There's not nearly as many records of other species being infiltrated by gene stealers the same way. Yeah. But humans, humans are like the right blend of biology and psychic capability to where this really works out well. <laughs> it's like, 
like I don't think the Tau are psychically active enough. Um, the Eldar are too psychically active, and also like will can detect Gene Stealer cults like cultists very easily and purge their you know purge such an infestation before it really gets underway. And then there's orcs. I don't. I don't think I've seen like old second edition models of Gene Steeler cult orcs. Yeah. It's weird looking, but I don't think that's ever made it into it, yeah, it, into modern times. Like I think the and really the original source of like squigs was like actually from like Tyranid infestation. Um but that's since been changed. That's not really canon anymore. So remember, if anyone tells you that 40k canon is concrete and unchanging, remember Squigs, because it's not. <laughs> but uh, Or Squats. Yes. What are those? Or Squats. Yeah. No. <laughs> that never... <laughs> <laughs> hey, if more of you want to play the army with me... <laughs> <laughs> you mean the Squats that just went up for pre-order on uh, for Necromunda? Those Squats? <laughs> nope, not them. Not them. Because they're not... They're not they haven't been eaten by Tyranids, so they weren't. That's squats. true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to so need yeah, the diorama of, of your Tyranids eating squats now for the next <laughs> for the next event we go to. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe make a Gene Stealer cult using the squat models. Ah, yeah. Yeah. It's all squat models with human. tentacle tentacle heads and and ridgy foreheads. <laughs> But yeah, if you look at a, the the Gene Stealer cult model line, you'll see like a number of bodies that are just very obvious mutants or crossbreeds where like they're starting to take human form or they're like they're humanoid in the way that Gene Stealers are, but not quite. There's the occasional extra limb the heads that are more or less human, the the ridgy foreheads, little tiny gene stealer familiars. But then you'll get like some of the neophytes and some of the characters where they're practically human, only just slightly not. Also, strangely, one of the first model lines that had decent female representation. Yeah. Because gene stealers aren't like gene stealer cultists aren't limited to male or female. I mean, they definitely need to be able to reproduce, but there's plenty of women in the combat roles in those groups. In fact, like, I want to say the Jackal Alphys yeah. is is a woman. I think the Reductus Saboteur. The, 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 the Reductus Saboteur is, is um, and then there is a, a female Magus model. Yes. I think the neophyte hybrids are still mostly male, but... They're, they're mostly male, like, I mean, they're all kind of slender and, and humanoid in shape. So, and have kind of bulky armor. So it's kind of hard to tell, honestly. Right. But like, but yeah, it, it's interesting. That, like that was one of the first model lines when like the gene stealer cults came out in plastic in the, what was the death watch board game they had like years ago. Yeah. Death watch overkill. Yep. Death watch overkill. And, uh, they've become like returning from the depths of second edition to become a full fledged faction today. And so now we have the new updated ninth edition book. So what are 10 things you need to know about gene stealer cults? 
So first off, item number one, Ambush is the most flexible deployment system ever. And going second may be better than going first. So um, there, in pre in the eighth edition version, there was a rule called Cult Ambush that units at. Now the rule is called Conceal, but Conceal has two modes. And pretty much everything in the book has this. I don't think yeah. there's anything that doesn't even even their transports and their their heavy vehicles have conceal so this is although the the second mode is limited in who can take that right right so basically the way the way conceal works is when you are deploying you can put units into one of two places you can set it up in ambush or you can set it up underground. You can only do it underground if it's an infantry or biker, so no rock grinders or, or ridge runners underground, or no trucks underground. But um, ambush, and this, this is the classic Gene Steeler cult thing, you don't deploy a unit. You deploy a marker, an ambush marker. And actually, the Gene Stealer Cult Codex is fantastic because it actually comes with a sheet of ambush markers, which is fantastic. Yeah. Like, it comes with a little set of cardboard pop-out markers that are all about, uh, probably about 32 millimeter. Like, they're, they're, they're kind of a 32 millimeter base, I think. I think they're more 25s. Are they closer to 25s? Where, where are mine? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's maybe 28 but yeah i mean they're yeah they're they're not particularly large right but you can put one of these markers down and that represents a unit that's an ambush you don't have to specify which unit you just say okay for this unit i'm deploying him in ambush i get to put an ambush token somewhere in my deployment zone and the thing about an ambush token is it like you said, it doesn't, it represents where a unit is, but it doesn't represent which unit, which unit it is. And it also cuts off your opponent's ability to deploy things. So enemy models cannot be set up or moved within nine inches of an ambush marker. So if your opponent has the ability to infiltrate a model and put it in the deployment zone within like so many inches of an, you know, can't be within so many inches of an enemy model. Well, there's no models. You don't have a model on the board. We have a token that says nobody can get within nine inches of it. Uh, if they have a, a first turn scout move, they can't move within nine inches of that model. So you have the opportunity to set up your, like where your units will be. And prevent your opponent from being able to really take advantage of not having anything there. So, yeah, with ambush markers, it's like, well, when, so what do I do with them once they're there? So, if you, in the first battle round, the behavior is a bit different if you go first or you go second. If you go first, you have to reveal them, you have to, to reveal what's been in ambush at the start of your command phase. So, that means like you've had your movement. Anybody you didn't ambush and isn't underground has has moved. And then when you start revealing them, you basically take a model, you put it within an inch of the center of that marker and more than nine inches away from any enemy models. So you can't get around like deep strike restrictions or anything like that. And then you have to place the whole rest of the model within six inches of the first one and with wholly within your deployment zone and more than nine inches away. So you do have to like keep them all kind of clustered together. 
but it can be any of the units you've put in ambush. So you can decide, oh, they set up something here. Well, I need to screen that with guys. Or, no, I need to keep this infantry squad out of the way. I'm going to put a truck there instead to kind of, like, eat up some fire and block off some line of sight. Like, you can you can decide what you want to put where. If you go second, though, you reveal your ambush markers after your opponent has moved. So they have to move blindly the first turn. They don't know. They know where stuff's going to be, but they don't know what's going to be there. So they have to kind of guess what you're going to do, and you get to react to it. So going second is really, really good for this army. You want yeah. to go second with this army. Yeah. Okay, so now I get to say the the bad flash fun thing for them? Go ahead. Okay, the other thing if you go second... Because they're not revealed in the movement phase, you like I, I worked on setting up some really nice first turn charges against Richard, and I could not move within nine inches of his army because he had all these ambush tokens out, mm-hmm. and that meant that one, I couldn't even charge them because they weren't there. So it kind of slowed my army down to where one I couldn't move up close, but two, those were charges that were very hard and. I couldn't really make. So it, it was very frustrating to kind of have that limitation on an assaulty army going against the gene stealers. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and that is, that is kind of by design. The idea is that the gene stealers have, they've been planning this, this uprising, planning these ambushes, and they can lure you in, stymie your plans, and then get the jump on you. Which is also why the other option they have for going underground, um, then during your movement phases, like during the reinforcement step of your movement phases, you can set them up out of effectively deep strike. You can set them up within or just outside of eight inches instead of the normal nine, or you can set them up within six inches, but you give up the option to charge. Being able to deep strike with and make an eight inch charge rather than a nine inch charge is much better. And six inches gives you a chance to set somebody up and like screen with it or set somebody up to shoot. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to set up that closely to someone. And if a unit is set up underground, has any abilities that you would use in your command phase. So like you have characters that have command phase abilities like the Primus, um, you can use them once you've set them up as if it were your command phase. So even though your turn, like you've already passed your command phase, you don't give up using that ability. You don't lose yeah. a turn on which it. Is, so. Which is super nice. And I wish I had realized that when I, I, I actually missed, completely missed that in, in my game against Dennis. But yeah, it's, they are probably like, this is the most, this army has the, probably the best deployment rules as far as being able to counter your opponent's plan of any army totally on fluff for them very well designed but it also makes it probably one of the harder armies to deploy properly yes because the, there's just a lot to work into it right a, a, another good thing that like the the flexibility of the the underground deep strike rules um leads very good into our second point because yes the this army has a special rule called crossfire and it makes it very important 
as to where you get your units set up, where you move them to, their positioning is very important. Oh, absolutely. So crossfire, uh, you have units that have the crossfire keyword. Um, crossfire only applies if every unit from your army has the Gene Stealer Colts keyword, excluding unaligned units. And then there's another condition we'll get to a little bit later that might accidentally turn off crossfire for you if you don't watch what you're doing. But basically, units that have crossfire, which is pretty much your acolyte hybrids, neophyte hybrids, the jackal alphas, metamorphs, the jackals, the keller morph, the sanctus, if you give him a sniper rifle. Right. We'll have it. The yeah, the jackals, the ridge runners, like all, and then like all your vehicles have crossfire. So when a crossfire unit is selected to shoot, you if all of the attacks target one enemy unit that does not have a crossfire marker, which again is included because it's the flip side of the ambush marker. So really great codex design, codex inclusion <laughs> for GW on this one. After resolving the attacks you figure out if the unit that was targeted gets a crossfire token or crossfire marker to get a crossfire marker. Five of your attacks have to hit. That's not wound. That's just, you have to get five hits or one hit with a weapon that does more than one damage, which is a lot of the weapons that are on your vehicles. Right. Or grenades. Grenades also work. Yes, because they do D six damage. So, it just has to be a damage characteristic other than one. So basically right. anything that can potentially do more than one damage, if you get one hit with that or five hits with a damage one weapon, then the target gets a crossfire marker. Now, once a unit has a crossfire marker, if an enemy unit, like when you have another unit target that cr- unit that has the crossfire marker, your crossfire units get plus one to hit. If you're... And then beyond that, if the unit is flanked by two crossfire units, like if you can draw a line from any point on the base of one model through the unit to the nearest point, I think it's from the nearest point to the nearest point. No, draw a line from any part of the base or hole of one model in the attacking crossfire unit to any part of the base or hole of one model in another friendly crossfire unit that's visible to the model. So if line of sight is broken, you can't get the crossfire effect. And if that line passes over the base or hole of one or more models in the target unit and does not pass across an obscuring piece of terrain, unless the crossfire unit is on the piece of terrain... So basically, you you flank if you can flank the unit with with two crossfire units, then that unit that has the crossfire marker is considered exposed. If it's exposed, you get plus one to wound as well. And if the shooting unit is within twelve inches, they also get no cover. So you can take and it's they do not get the benefits of cover, dense cover, light cover, heavy cover doesn't matter. They get no benefit from cover if you're within 12, which is why that underground being able to pop up within eight, six to eight inches, even if you're giving up the chance to charge, can be fantastic because it can just leave the opponent completely open and just ready to be shot at. Plus one to hit, plus one to wound, no cover. 
and for an army where your shooting isn't necessarily the strongest, it's like on par with like guardsmen, the, uh, plus one to hit and plus one to wound can be huge. Yeah. So again, deployment, unit positioning is very, very important for this army and it makes their shooting far more functional. And I think it's a big shift from eighth edition because in eighth edition it was all about assaults like it was all about trying to get those real close assaults and seventh edition i think you know the original gene stealer cult codex was the same way too it's like you wanted to get that chance to get that like i can pop up within six inches and charge you that now it's really about positioning and tying some like getting somebody pinned in a shoot in a shooting crossfire and so it's like it's another one of those rules that is very thematic, very appropriate, and really plays to one, you know, it kind of helps make something that is kind of meh in this army a real strength, which is good. Also, even with all this, this is still less complex than other armies that are out right now. So, like, I like the it's, way Gene Steeler cults are worded. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it is, it's actually pretty easy to, like, understand once you get it right, and then, like, it's... The the complexity is in execution rather than just understanding what you're supposed to do in the first place. <laughs> right, exactly. Now moving on to point number three. Unquestioning loyalty makes your mooks take wound for your characters. Uh, this is a very character-heavy army, and we're going to get into that further a little bit later on. But uh, one thing is, like, characters have, you know, there's the lookout sir rule, which says, like, characters can't be targeted if there's, you know, not a, a unit with so many models within three inches. Uh, and, you know, we've had the balanced data slate that has tried to tone that down so that there's not a lot of abuse to it. But gene stealer cults still have a way to even make their unit, their character units safer. And that is unquestioning loyalty. A lot of units have, and actually this isn't, this isn't even a, well, let's see, there is a rule for unquestioning loyalty, but like almost everything that's infantry has it. Like if it's not a vehicle, I think even the bikes have it. Yeah. Basically anything that's not a vehicle has unquestioning loyalty. Everything, everything that's not a vehicle or the Patriarch. Because everyone is unquestioningly loyal. To the patriarch. Pa- yes. And you won't have two patriarchs, really. <laughs> so, No. But uh, basically, every time a saving throw is made for... And this is at the saving throw level. So your opponent has already rolled a hit and rolled a wound. So you know a wound is coming in. Each time a saving throw for a cult character model from your army has failed, you can select one f- other friendly cult, and that's the cult in brackets of that particular cult, or Brood Brothers model, we'll be getting those in a bit, uh, with this ability within three inches of that character model, and take an unquestioning loyalty test. Roll a d6, adding one to the result if the character is a patriarch. So um, they're even more likely to protect the patriarch. On a four-up, you pass the test, and that character model does not suffer any damage. Instead, the friendly model you selected is destroyed and the attack sequence ends. So your mooks and even your other small, like lesser characters will throw themselves in the way to prevent, uh, you know, prevent your, your characters from taking damage. So yeah. it gives you a layer of a blade of wounds on pretty much everything if you layer your characters and your your other units properly. So again, positioning very very important for this army. 
However, now I'm th- I'm throwing away little guys to protect my big guys. Doesn't that take out my little guys? Well, that takes us to number four. Summoning the cult lets you replace lost models. Uh, a number of the units, uh, specifically neophyte hybrids, acolyte hybrids, and hybrid metamorphs, can take cult icons as a unit upgrade. And those cult icons let them do a thing called summon the cult. And what summoning the cult does is... It's just an action. It's it's not even an action like in the game yeah. action. It's just a thing you can do during your command phase. And each time a like when a unit in your army summons the cult, if it's a neophyte hybrid, they can restore D6 lost models. If it's an acolyte hybrid or hybrid metamorph, they can restore D3 lost models. And those just those models just get put, you know, added back to the unit with full wounds remaining. And if a unit could summon the cult more than once, now you're like, wait a minute, they can only take one icon. Well, there's a character called an Acolyte Icon Ward, and he can give the same ability to any core unit within six inches. So you can stack it. And that also core units does include Adelin Jackals, who can't take an icon, but if they're within six inches of an Icon Ward, they can restore one of their bike, like D3 of their bikers with full wounds remaining. Now, the one the one cap on that is if a unit has the ability to do this twice, like let's say you've got a neophyte hybrid unit that's within six inches of an icon ward, they can summon the cult twice, once from the unit, once from the icon ward, but it still caps them at six models restored that turn. And for anybody else, it's three models, but like you can be burning models and just keep getting them back with good rolls. You can just like keep a unit fleshed out and holding a point or providing cover to a character or screening something. It's like you can just keep those units going. So I'm I'm hearing just like Necrons, you want to take out the entire unit. You have to. Yeah. Yeah, you have you have to if you can clear the unit out, then they can't they can't that unit can't summon anybody else. But like it really surprised me. This is not like an action they take in your command phase or they don't trade off like they don't have to trade off their movement to do it. They do it like it just happens in the command phase. And then it's just done. There's no downside to doing it. And that's to reflect the fact that there's so many cultists hidden that you like summon the cults like, oh, yeah, you killed three of these guys. But there's like three more ready to take their place and just run up and join them. Yeah, the, this ability it is, I think, most useful for the neophytes because you can get more of those back. It, it is interesting that like of the acolytes and the, the metamorphs, you can get those back too, less of them. Like the the weird one I, I think is is that you can actually get like the jackals back. But I think that's gonna be a lot harder considering like the movement of the jackal unit and the movement of the icon ward. Like, yeah, it's like how, you'd have to like kind of loop them back around to the icon ward yeah. and then have them sit for a turn like like that turn, like then the next turn, they can get some people back and then move away again. So it's like right. you were not likely to do it. You're more likely to like follow around like a unit and like following around a unit of neophytes with an acolyte icon ward. You're practically going to getting six models every turn, like well, yeah, on right. a, like average rolls. I can see it happen, Rob. You just turn left, turn left, turn left and come back for the pit stop, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But and th- this is also one of the few cases where you can restore models, and the the only limitation on like engagement range is well, if the model if the unit wasn't already in engagement range, then they can't be put in engagement range. But like if you've got a unit of like hybrid metamorphs in close combat with an enemy unit, and you've lost some guys, but you still have the icon in there, they can summon D three guys, and those guys will just pop right back into engagement range, and you can get their attacks and everything. Yeah. Which actually is really interesting with, I mean, this goes a little specific into the metamorphs, but the metamorphs have an ability that lets them attack before they die. Yes. And then after they die, they're removed, but then next turn you just summon more. Yep. D, you know, like they'll get, you know, especially, and again, if you've got uh, an icon ward nearby, I mean, they're going to get back like, th- you know, almost always three guys. Yeah. So yeah, so, again, you have to you have to slaughter the unit to a man if you're going to wipe them out because they will just keep spawning more guys. I mean, point wise, the icons are not cheap, so that's your point trade off there. So you want to try and make sure you remember to do it and and get your points value worth out of them. Right. Yeah, the icons are generally twenty points. And I, I don't think that's with the price in the codex. And I don't think it changed in the most recent. And how uh, many points yeah, for a so. model? Um, hybrid. Meta, let's see the, like the neophytes are six points yeah. model. So you'd have to get back four for it to have made its points back, which that's pretty easy over a couple okay. of turns. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think two turns of, of doing it, you're going to get your points back for, for for the neophytes particularly, yeah. For acolytes, it's a little bit harder. They're nine points a model, and you're capped. At, and you're capped at three, so it it's yeah, it's a little tougher for those. I don't. I mean, one turn of getting three guys back will make it up. Yeah, metamorphs are twelve points per model, but that means if you get two models back, you've paid for it. So yeah, so I mean, it it more or less works out and. Yeah, it just comes down to like, w- like what are you trying to do with that particular unit? I this is definitely not a case where I like, yeah, put a cult icon in every unit. You can't afford to. Yeah, but but if, but having like a couple of key units that are just there to survive, and like this unit is going to camp on this point or is going to go assault somebody, and I need them to stay alive, then yeah. I'd say that it's worth buying buying the twenty point upgrade. Yeah, neophytes. A unit of ten is only sixty points, so getting them up to eighty with a gold icon is not bad. And if you're going to go ahead and take one hundred and twenty, a hundred like, or if you're going to take twenty of them, one hundred and twenty points versus one hundred and forty points, it's probably worth taking the icon in that case. Yeah, I think so. That so now we're moving on to point five, and we we had mentioned this about like you know characters, you know, jumping in the way of characters, refilling units that maybe have jumped in the way of characters. Uh, we're going to go into army construction now because you can't... Sp- this army has a lot of characters, but the thing is, for number five, you can't spam characters, but you can load up on them. Now, when I say spam characters, you can't... Like, there's a lot of characters in this army that are really good. But you are limited on how many you can take of each one. So you've got a couple of rules here. There's... There's the gene sect rule and the brood coven rule. The gene sect rule says 
You can include a maximum of one of each Gene Steeler's cult character model in a detachment. So if you want two Keller Morphs, for example, you have to take two separate detachments. You cannot have more than one in a detachment. And there's a bunch of characters. There's the Patriarch, the Abominant, the Locust, the Primus, the Magus, the Nexus, the Icon Ward, the Clamavus, great names, the Keller Morph, <laughs> the Sanctus, the Jackal Alphys, uh, the Reductus Saboteur, and the Biophagus. That's more than you have slots for. And you can't, and you can't have more than one of them in a detachment. However, the other thing is for each Gene Stealer cult model with the HQ battlefield role that takes up a battlefield role slot in this detachment, you can take one other Gene Stealer cult character, which now takes up no slot. So like if you want to have a patriarch, a primus and a magus, and you're like, wait a minute, now that's my three HQ slots in my battalion. Well, you can still take an icon ward and a jackal alphas and you know one other character and they don't take up any slots yep and uh that's very important because the characters this army probably more than any other has the characters doing a lot of the heavy lifting as far as like whether they are good at doing things themselves or whether they are force multipliers or ways to mess with your your opponent um and also, you ha- there's limitations with the Brood Coven rule on who you can take as your warlord as well. If your army has a patriarch in it, the patriarch must be the warlord because, again, fluff appropriate, everybody worships the patriarch. If your army does not have a patriarch but has a Primus or a Magus model, then they have to be your – you can't su- select any other Gene Stealer cult characters as your warlord and any Gene Stealer cult characters that aren't HQs, such as, for example, the Keller Morph cannot be your warlord either. So you have to build this character wise in a way that fits the fluff. But fortunately, they've given you ways to fit a lot of characters in. Uh, really, the only limitation becomes how many points you want to spend on them. Yeah. Um, and that's that's good because, like I said, as the characters being heavy hitters, like doing a lot of your heavy lifting, I mean, just the quick rundown. The Patriarch is an absolute combat monster and one of your best psychers. The, ma- uh, the Primus basically serves the role of Chapter Master, or in this case, I'd say Captain slash Lieutenant all in one because... Your, your cult core models within six inches, reroll hit rolls of one, and you can pick a core cult core unit within nine inches of the model, and until the start of your next command phase, they reroll wounds of wound rolls of one. That's the meticulous planner ability. Magises, they give you more psychers, and uh, let your units, your infantry and biker units within six inches shrug off mortal wounds in the psychic phase on a five up. Acolyte Icon Ward that helps you restore care, uh, restore uh, models and can plant a banner as an action that uh, gives you gives an aura of uh, plus one to charge rolls for your infantry or biker models or characters. The Jackal Alphys is both a good shooter on their own with a sniper rifle and makes your crossfire units in general and your jackals and vehicle units in particular, better. Um, getting into elites, you've got the Abominant, which is a really big, nasty Aberrant, which the Aberrant is basically like your heavy melee character. The Abominant is your... He- or Aber- Aberrants are a heavy melee unit. The Abominant is what if you made one of those a character made him heavier. 
the Nexos is good for just oh yeah that that unit on the battlefield they've got a crossfire marker now doesn't matter how many I don't even have to have shot it yet because it happens in your command phase we're yeah. gonna get plus one to hit that guy over there yeah that's probably one of my my favorite like there's pretty much three of the elite characters that I really like and and he's the the first of them that I yeah I particularly care for and then you the other great thing about the nexus is you pick a core unit on the battlefield then you select a either a primus a jackal alphas or a clamavus that's within 6 inches of the nexus and that unit that you picked is considered to be in range of all of that models like the model that you picked uh, all of their aura abilities. So, for example, you could have a Primus parked right next to your Nexus, and now that unit gets the benefit of the plus, like, reroll ones to hit. It, it And can be selected for any of their other abilities. So, like, you can also give that one the uh, meticulous planning and, you know, reroll ones to wound. Right. It, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like its own little synaptic imperative. Yep. You've got the Clamavus, which ha- he's the one with the DJ station. One great thing is he can pick a core unit within 12 inches and that unit can perform actions and still shoot without the action failing. Yeah. This is, this is the second one. I, I really like yep. this guy. Um, and also the, screws up uh, deep striking within 12 inches. Right. But then like he also in your morale phase can basically screw over an enemy unit. Yep. Just cause they can make it so that the enemy unit can't perform actions. And if they are currently performing an action, it fails or just take away their objective secured. So like, yes, let's make it. So my opponent can't score points. Yep. Um, you've got the locust, which is their super bodyguard, the killer morph, which has the most shots ever. Yeah. That, that, that this is the third one. I, I really yep. like him because he like he does shoot a lot. Um, his shots, like when he hits with sixes, he does mortal wounds in addition to the the normal damage. Um, he is a crossfire unit, which is I think very important to notice because he is a single model, so it is easy to like stick him underground and pop him up somewhere. And be able to, like, expose a number of, of units. Yeah. And he can, like, by himself, like, if he if somebody isn't marked with a crossfire marker already, he's got six shots that can then spawn into extra shots, and he hits on a two-up, so he's going to get five hits. So... Yeah. Um, he can make somebody, like, give somebody a crossfire marker all by himself, um... And even if you do pop him up, like you pop him up within six inches just to, you know, just to be a jerk. Or maybe that puts him within six inches of heroic deeds, heroic inspiration, which gives it, you know, like gives a a core unit within six inches uh, the ability to reroll hit rolls of one if he killed any enemy models in the shooting phase. Um, Maybe you need to position him correctly. After he shoots, he can do a normal move. And they're all pistols, so he can even shoot if he's engaged. Yep. So, yeah, he's fantastic. The Sanctus is your assassin of choice. Yeah. 
because he's got like weapon skill, ballistic skill two, but it doesn't matter because all his attacks automatically hit and the target never receives the benefit of cover. He's got a sniper rifle that inflicts additional mortal wounds on wound rolls of four. It's a damage two, so it automatically grants somebody the crossfire. Like, if he targets somebody, they'll gain a crossfire token yep. because he's automatically hitting he's them automatically with a weapon that does hitting. two damage. Yep. Yep. And every time he he attacks, makes an attack with that sniper rifle, the target is counts as being exposed, even if they aren't flanked. Right. I, I'm I'm less sold on the 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 dagger version because he's he's just kind of a, a close combat version of the same thing. But like, yeah, I, I think the sniper rifle is where it's at for him. Oh yeah, the sniper rifle is fantastic for him. Plus, he gets. Plus one extra to his armor saving throws if he's in cover. He can't be shot at if he's more than tw- if you're more than twelve inches away. He's got a five up invulnerable save every time you attack him. You're at minus one to hit anyway. It's like yeah, he is he is at like he's almost like at vindicare levels of sniper goodness. So yeah. I mean yeah, no, he's fantastic. The reductus saboteur exists. Um, so does the biophagus, and I think that's yeah. the last two characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh- I, I can see like that the reductus saboteur just feels too too many hoops to jump through mm-hmm. uh to be worth it because they have to like lay down a bomb and then like get away from it so that they don't blow themselves up and then like later on blow that up when you know an enemy unit comes near it and it just seems a little little too high risk not enough reward for a character in this army. Yeah. Like it's a little too much setup. Biophagus is if you're running an army that has that you want to use aberrants in, Biophagus is is totally worth taking because he just makes aberrants better. Right. But if you're not taking aberrants, I don't think he's N- no. There's there's not take- there's not a reason to take him unless you're taking aberrants. And I think that separates him from the Jackal Alphas because the Jackal Alphas is good on their own and makes a lot of your crossfire stuff better. Yeah. If you don't take Jackals, it's the, they're still fine. Yeah. But, I mean, better with Jackals and vehicles and, and fitting that theme more. But, yeah, the Biophagus, if you're not taking Aberrants, he's, he's, uh, he's not a, a, a choice. But, yeah. but there, as you can see, like, there's a lot of characters that can either mess with your opponents or are just really nasty on their own. And so being able to fit more of them into a detachment than you normally would is a really good thing. Um, now we're going to sp- hit number six. And number six gets to something that has more or less disappeared from this codex, but does still get mentioned and is still a thing you can do but not in nearly the same ways you could before and that's brood brothers brood brothers are not nearly as useful as they want once were and that's not just because guard isn't very good right now so we mentioned during the fluff section that like during the uprising guard detachments will turn on each other and that is because the the gene stealer cults have infiltrated the Imperial Guard. And so to represent that in previous versions of the Codex, there were Brood Brother Infantry Squads and Brood Brother Sentinels and Brood Brother Lehman Russes. And you could even take other units from the Imperial Guard Codex as and make them Brood Brothers. And they were just 
part of your army. They didn't count as being from part of a particular cult. And in fact, they also didn't get like back in the day, they didn't get like regiment rules or anything. They just became like brood brother became their regiment, but you could use them to fill out shooting. You could like roll up with a, a cult tank as part of your gene steer cult detachment. That is no longer the case, but they didn't want to get rid of Brood Brothers completely because they got kits to sell. So with Brood Brothers, when mustering a battleforged army for each Gene Stealer cult detachment you include in your army, you can also include one Astra Militarum detachment, even though the units in such detachments do not have any faction keywords in common. Uh, these Astra Militarum detachments are also known as Brood Brothers, and they do not prevent your army from being battleforged, and they gain the following rules. They can only include units with the regiment or unaligned keyword. Um, you replace the Imperium and regiment keywords in every instance on their data sheet with the Brood Brothers keyword. So they don't even get the Gene Stealer Cult's faction keyword. They just yeah. get the Brood Brothers keyword. So it means they can't be targeted with all like a lot of the stratagems in this book. Do not work with them at all. Um, they cannot be selected as your warlord. They can never have a warlord trait and they cannot be given any relics. So like they're not going to steal relics from the guard and use them. Now, normally crossfire, that crossfire ability we've been mentioning, which is kind of key to how a lot of this works. You have to have an all gene stealer cult army with the exception of brood brothers. The inclusion of brood brothers units in your army does not prevent gene stealer cults units in your army from using crossfire. If you have spent less than 25% of your either power level or points, depending on how you're building your army. So let's say points. Most people are going to be using points. Provided that the total points value is no more than 25% of your army's total. Which means it, you, in a 2,000 point game, you can have 500 points of Brood Brothers. Yep. And that's it. Yep. Now, that does mean you get some of the benefits that Guard have been getting. Like, for example, right now, infantry guards or infantry squads in the Guard get all their upgrades for free. So for like a you can pay 60 points and get a unit of Brood Brothers with uh, like a 10 man unit with a LAS cannon in it. Like there's still things to be taken. Uh, they are considered Astra Militarum detachments. They do not lose that keyword. They only lose the Imperium keyword, which means they do get the Hammer of the Emperor ability, so they auto-wound everything on a six to hit. Um, they don't suffer any penalties to indirect fire, so if you want to bring, like, mortars, or if you can fit in, like, a basilisk or something like that, you can take advantage of that. They've got that going for them, which is nice, but you have to be very careful about how you use them. Because if you do do it wrong, you lose the ability to use crossfire. It's also disappointing that they do not gain crossfire. It seems like they would be the perfect unit to gain crossfire, but they do not. Yeah. Um, however, they do get a loyalty to the cult regimental doctrine, uh, which adds two to their leadership, which is really good. Guard tend to have lower leadership, like leadership six on a lot of things. So having getting them up to like leadership eight stock is pretty good uh and then infantry units gain the unquestioning loyalty ability which means those brood brother infantry squads can jump in the way to defend your gene stealer cult characters yeah so, so it's not all bad it's just it's just a lot more limited in in what you can do because mm -hmm. before there were just gene stealer 
cult versions of these data sheets in the codex, mm. and you could yeah just put them in your in your Gene Stealer cult's detachment. Right. Now, I will say for Games Workshop, this is a lot less of a nightmare to try to balance, that you don't have to update two books at the same time. Like, when you change True. up Guard, you don't have to... Ch- like, this is kind of future-proofed against, you know, anything they want to do with Guard, which is is good. I totally get it. I, yeah. I see why they did it that way. It strikes me as being restricted in some of the same ways that, like, playing Inari are restricted for Eldari, where it's like, you can bring in stuff from, like, the Drukari book, but why would you, like, in many cases, there's not a lot of benefit. In this case, I do think if you can fit in a small, like, a, a patrol of Brood Brothers and, like, maybe fit in a tank and a couple of infantry squads and, like, a company commander and stuff, um, there might be benefit to bringing it because it does bring some heavy weaponry that you might have trouble getting in this army otherwise. Yeah. So, so there is there are cases where it's, it's worthwhile, but... Yeah, I mean, but I can, you can totally build without it and not have any problems. Yeah, I the the main thing is is like I had cult sentinels and I had some Lehman Rust tanks, and now I have to get other stuff to be even be able to use those models anymore. Right, because you can't just drop them into a detachment. Yeah, I have to fill out a new actual Astro Militarum detachment to be able to use those mm-hmm. again. So. Yeah, that is disappointing. And so uh, that, I that I imagine that hit a number of people right in the uh, army building that they had, you know, cuz it was just a thing you could do before. And yeah, Brood Brothers, you, you know, they didn't have access to the cult creeds in the past, so they weren't quite as effective. But it I mean, they were still useful and it was still easy to drop them in and yeah, not having that is is a not having that being that easy is a bit of a frustration. And yeah. I'm like looking over there. I'm looking at their strats real quick to see if there's anything they have that targets that works with Brood Brothers. And I don't, I don't think there think, was. I don't remember seeing. Yeah, anything. yeah. And I think you know, not having the Gene Stealer cult um, keyword again. It's like that surprised me that they they got rid of that. That you you don't even get that keyword. I understand why they did for balance reasons, but and to prevent unexpected interactions. Right. And you used to be able to ambush him. Yeah. Yeah. So. Can't do that either. Nope. Can't do that. No. I'm just going to, just going to pop up this, uh, this, oh, this wasn't just a dude. This was a Lehman Rust tank that you were running towards. Oops. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Brood Brothers are not a, not a cult and do not have a cult creed, but what's going to take us to number seven about the units are the cult creeds are all better and they get extra psychic powers too. Um, there are, one, two, three, four, five, six creeds or six particular cults, which are all just variations on a theme as far as the, you know, from fluff wise, like there's the cult of the four-armed emperor, which is the one that tries to infiltrate most of like imperial society. The hive cults are the ones that are built around taking over like the imperial military, which is funny because none of it actually involves brood brothers and is mostly <laughs> focused on like falling back and shooting. There's the bladed cog, which is actually even like cybernetically enhancing. Uh, it's like almost Mechanicus, but like if Mechanicus were Gene Stealer cult, but also like that's getting into a lot of like their vehicles and such. There's the rusted claw, which just want to make, you know, just want to see the world burn. 
the pauper princes who are probably the some of the most zealous of the particular cults and the twisted helix which is all about like weird mutants like that's where your your aberrants and your your biophases yeah tend to be located i appreciate that uh most all of the cult creeds they they basically get uh give you kind of two abilities and a lot of them are like have both a kind of shooting advantage and a melee advantage mm-hmm so, like, the Cult of the Four-Armed Emperor, for example, uh, you can re-roll charge rolls made for the this creed, and each time a ranged attack is made against a unit from this creed, if the attacker is more than 12 inches away, then uh, you get light cover. So, this is the sneaky, get up close to you and, and jump you cult. The Hive Cult is, you know, they can shoot in a turn in which they fell back, but they're at minus one to hit if they do, and they can perform actions in a, which, in a turn in which they fell back or advanced, and they can shoot without actions failing. So Hive Cult is your, I want to be able to do anything I want, and like move and shoot and do actions and still shoot. Uh, Bladed Cog, uh, six up and vulnerable save, which makes them very Mechanicus. Reroll one wound roll when you're shooting or fighting, and uh, three inches extra range to your ranged weapons, which that can be really useful. That's I think that's the one yeah. you were using against that, in that, your games. Yeah. yeah, that was the one that I was using. And considering the fact that they, there's a lot of rapid fire in the army, that also like just makes it easier for you to get more shots with that. Yep. Rusted Claw is nomadic nihilists, but they're also survivalists, so... They treat attacks of AP minus one or minus two as AP zero or minus one, respectively. They they add they basically worsen the AP by one against them. And then if they make a normal move or advance, then when they shoot, they're considered to have remained uh, stationary. So they can move up and shoot pretty easily. Popper princes, uh, when they if they charged were charged or yeah, if they charged were charged or heroically intervened, they are plus one to hit and they ignore combat attrition modifiers and twisted helix. Uh, they are, they add one to their strength and add one to their movement. And they basically have a weakened form of transhuman physiology. One's to, one and twos to wound them always fail. So like if you want Big guys that are going to just shrug off wounds and get up in your face. Again, Twisted Helix is is like, again, like if you're doing Aberrants, Abominance, things like that, Pure Strain Gene. Well, no, Pure Strains, I don't think actually get Cold Creeds, do they? Uh, I don't think they do. No, they, okay, they do get the Cult. So, so yeah, Pure Strain Gene Stealers do actually get, I believe, unless there's a rule on the Cult Creed themselves. Nope, they get, they get the Cult Creed as well. So, yes. Pure strain gene stealers at strength five and nine inches of movement. If you take twisted helix. Yeah. Those could be good. I think once upon a time they didn't, but that is, that has changed. Yeah. Uh, something else the cults get. I mean, everybody gets the standard. You get a stratagem, you get a relic, uh, you get a warlord trait. And, and some of those are like pretty good. Like cult of the four armed emperor gets a stratagem, a plan generations in the making, which, after your opponent uses a stratagem, that stratagem's cost uses, goes up by one for the rest of the game. Uh, so it's like you can you can do things like that. Like all like they all have their their tit their their tricks to use. But one thing that marks these out from different than most other sub factions we see is also 
each of these gets a psychic power that their psychers just know. They, it's not a an extra psychic power that they can pick instead of one from the Broodmind discipline, which itself is a pretty good discipline and pretty well-rounded. There's a couple of blessings for buffs. There's a couple of maledictions, which, uh, like, I know you were using, was it mind control regularly in the game against me, where yeah. you're, like, basically subtracting one from my hit rolls, which did hurt. Yeah. Like, it was, it was actually making a, a noticeable impact. And you've got a like you've got a couple of witch fires for doing mortal wounds, like it, it's a good, well-rounded psychic discipline. But then, in addition, each cult has a psychic power that your cultists just know. In addition to the powers that they would pick from Broodmind, so like I think both the patriarch and the magus know two like on their character or on their data sheet, they they, they know, know two psychic powers. Yeah. And then Smite, of course. So now they, if they are from one of these cults, they know three. And just, again, which one you want to use is just going to be based off of what cult you play. Now, in addition, you can roll your own cult. They have a point-based system. Uh, so, uh, like, if you want to just play a spin-off of an existing cult, they have... So it's point-based. You can spend up to four points. Each ability you have costs a certain number of points that, and the total cannot exceed four. You are not limited to one or like, or you are not limited to two. Like some of them, it's like pick one from column A and pick one from column B, or you can pick any two of these. Uh, no, in this one, it's like splinter cult costs four. And that's the one that says you are basically th this cult, but under a different name. Like you get the cult creed, you can have the warlord trait. You can get the cult stratagem. You can get the cult psychic power. The only thing you give up is the cult relic. But if you, like, for narrative reasons, if you want to play a spinoff of a cult, you can definitely do that. Otherwise, like, some of these are only one point of piece. You could stack four of them up if you wanted to. Yeah. You do not get the, a psychic power, though. Like, you do not get a custom psychic power if you build your own. But, like, for example, you could take, like... You could take Symbiotic Broodmind, which lets you shoot in a turn in which you fall back, and maybe War Convoy, when one of your vehicles or bikers would lose a wound, uh, roll a D6 on a 6, they don't lose the wound. So maybe you want to be able to have bikers rolling up, shooting, running away, and shooting, a, you know, and then shooting again and surviving. Uh, it's like you can, there's a, there's a lot of different builds here. It just depends on, do you want that extra psychic power or not? Yeah. Or like, again, like you could take Toxic Agents, which lets you uh, automatically wound on a six, except for against vehicles and monsters, and then combine that with like Cold Eye Killers, which uh, each time a model with this creed makes a melee attack on an unmodified wound roll of six, improve the arm armor penetration by one. And then you'd still mm -hmm. have like one more point to pick one of these other ones that only costs one. Right. Maybe you take a custom to toil, which is the, uh, the, uh, twisted helix ability to not be wounded on ones and twos. Yeah. Or, uh, maybe you take Marshall, which like, unless like when a crossfire infantry with this model makes a range attack, unless that mo that unit moved, um, the target just is treated as having crossfire. But that, and that's one of the few that says you can't pick one called Agile Gorillas, which lets you uh, count as having moved state, remain stationary if you moved or advanced. So they're not going to let you combo that one. That's fine. 
but, but yeah, it's like there. I can definitely see you know if you wanted to rolling your own, and in the fluff section of the book, they they even mention like some non like some of the smaller offshoot cults that exist. So uh, this is actually one of the more interesting build systems. Again, I like this book for not being hyper complex. It's complex in the playing, not in the in the rules. Yeah. So that's just really good. Then there's the, that takes us to number eight, proficient planning. These are the character upgrades. Proficient planning lets you upgrade your units mostly to sneak attack in interesting ways. Now, not all of these are sneak attack based, and these are these standard costs you, like the unit costs plus one power and anywhere from 10 to 20 points, depending. And this is also rare in that a lot of these do not apply specifically to characters, just to units. Um, there's a few that specify characters like meditations and shadow can only apply to a psyker, which there are only psyker, psyker characters. Um, exacting planner can only be applied to a primus because it lets him pick two units for his meticulous planner ability instead of just one. Yeah. The, the large majority of these things are going to be a, a once per game thing. Like, they're yes. just going to happen once. They're not going to be... There's a few that are kind of static buffs throughout the game, but the majority of them are, like, when this unit shows up, they can do even something else a little extra special. Yeah. Yeah, most of them are tied to coming up from reinforcements. Uh, there's a couple that I find particularly interesting. Uh, Perfect Ambush can only be applied to a crossfire unit and when this unit is set up on the battlefield as reinforcements and you know from being underground you can use the ability if you do select an enemy unit within 12 inches of the unit until the end of the turn each time a model in this unit makes a range attack against that enemy unit they are treated as having a crossfire marker and being exposed for the attack so you can just pop up next to somebody who hasn't been shot at at all and now you get the plus one to hit the plus one to wound and because you're setting up within 12 inches you also ignore ignore cover for them so right and like that that one I and as a result of this because of the plus one to hit you're probably more than likely going to if the unit is still there after you're shooting it they're going to get a crossfire marker They'll get a real crossfire a marker. A real crossfire marker that the other units can take advantage of as well. Yes. Um, a second one that re I really like is they came from below. Uh, Non-vehicle units only. If this unit is set up in ambush, when revealing ambush markers, you can do one of the following. Remove an ambush marker from the battlefield and set this unit up, set up this unit underground instead. So you can be like, mm, no, I'm going to put them into deep strike. Or... After setting up this unit from an ambush marker, you, they can make a normal move as if it were the movement phase, but you must end that move more than nine inches away from enemy any enemy models. So um, that one can let you get into a better position to maybe uh, shoot somebody at you know from a position where they would be exposed, uh, or get in line, try you know go for that nine inch charge. However, if you're going to go for that nine inch charge or actually an eight inch charge, if you're popping up from underground, a trap is sprung is another good one 
When this unit is set up on the battlefield as reinforcements as a result of being set up underground, until the end of the turn, each time a charge roll is made for the unit, roll an additional die and discard one of them. So roll 3d6, drop the lowest, effectively, for your charges, which is really good chance to get that 9-inch charge, or that 8-inch charge that you need. Yeah. Uh, the the other one that I think I I would point out, and it's a little... There's a specific use that I, I see for it, it, which is the lying in wait, which is infantry only when this unit is set up on the battlefield as reinforcements as a result of being underground, it can lie in wait if it does so. Set up this unit anywhere on the battlefield that is more than three inches away from an enemy model, and until the end of the turn, the unit is not eligible to declare a charge with. Mm-hmm. The difference between... Six inches and three inches, you may be saying, well, what, why is that important? And a lot of it, I think, has to do with the footprint of a larger unit is still going to be kind of hard to get in certain places and still be able to like make use of crossfire and exposing units. That becomes easier when you're only getting through having to try and get three inches away yeah that's fair that's fair like if you're trying to drop a, a 20 man unit of neophytes in somewhere even just like a 15 like even model even even just 15 or 10 can be hard yeah. to, to fit in somewhere in a backfield but if you've only got three inches that you have to stay away all of a sudden that becomes easier to do Yes. Yeah. So no, that one is actually really good if you're if you're planning on doing that pop up surprise, uh, you know, deep striking. Yeah, being able to be within three inches, even if it means you can't get a charge, depending on what you're doing, that's not necessarily a downside. That yeah. maybe you know may fit with your plans very well. One other thought I did see with that one was the locust has a five inch heroic intervention. It, right. So he could pop up within three inches. He can't charge. But he but can, he can heroically intervene. Yes. Pop him up within three inches of an enemy character and just have him run at them. Yep. So, and then on the, the, they came from below. I do like that, that flexibility of those, those two options that you have. Mm-hmm. Well, I really like that one for like, you know, you're going second and your opponent has been moving towards an objective marker and you're like, nah, there's really nothing there. Uh- Actually, yeah, that was what I was going to say, is that when you can't plan on going second, if you're going first, like the like the ambush markers become a lot less, uh, like, like, you lose some of the advantage, right? For if, right. You, if you have to go, if you end up going first. But they came from below, can, I feel, kind of mitigate some of that that still gives you a, like a trick that you can pull even if you're going first right mm-hmm. that was what yeah I was and having yeah and and having you know you do have to do it at the army building level so it's like you'll know which unit you can do that with but having yeah. having one of those units where it's like i can do this either way it doesn't like i can put it on there and fake you out or i've decided that nah it's better if i yeah, I, I don't like this. I'm going to put him into deep strike anyway. But it lets you make that decision later. Right. And again, flexibility is is such a key in this army. Um, that yeah, having having that and trap is sprung is 
or it's, yeah, no, it's they came from below. They came from below is 10 points. It's one of the cheapest ones. Yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, sure. I'll, and it I'll, can I'll, be useful. Like, if you end up using, like, the move part of it, that can be a move to, like, move forward. If you're, especially if you're going first, that move forward can be really useful. Or it can be a move backwards to, you know, help keep your, keep a unit out of range. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it, no, it's, it's very, it's, it's very solid. handy. Oh, very solid. All right, moving on to number nine. We're getting near the end of here. Number nine, all of your units are Tyranids, but running them together with actual Tyranids really isn't great for either. Now, we yeah. mentioned in the storyline-wise that they don't play well, um, but uh, there were a lot of lists in the past where you – and not that long ago, like just before – or like around the time that the new Gene Stealer cult codex was out, but before the NIDS codex was out, that you were seeing some competitive lists where you would they would use Gene Stealer cultists and specifically like the ambush tokens to kind of de- define the the deployment parameters and kind of kind of squelch down what an opponent could do, and then use NIDS to come in and actually do some of the the actual fighting, and that worked pretty well, but. Now, both of these lose quite a bit. Gene Stealer cultists lose crossfire. Now, if you're doing an assault based Gene Stealer cult army, that may not be that big a deal to you. Yeah. Uh, but it is still a, a whole capacity that you lose access to because you have a non Gene Stealer cult detachment in your army that isn't Brood Brothers. Tyranids, on the other hand, they lose their high fleet adaptations, which they probably did before. They also lose synaptic imperatives, and that is a huge part of how, what yeah. makes them so good right now. And and losing that, I think, it makes this a, a bad combination for both sides. Like, you don't – you lose so much by not having synaptic imperatives. Right. I, I don't think there's a lot of value in running a hive mind army right now. Yeah. And I mean, considering the fact that both – both of your your troop options in this in this army are crossfire units. They are mainly going to focus on being able to use that that crossfire ability. They're not particularly close combat centric. I it, losing crossfires also just really gonna hurt. Yeah. Well, and, like, you can use Acolyte hybrids at, in close combat, although one of their big weapons, the, I think it was the Heavy Rock Saw, used to be really good, and now it's not. It's not that great. I mean, it's okay. The Heavy Rock Drill I see people using a lot of, just because it can crank out extra mortal wounds. But, yeah. um, but you know, it, and this t- takes us into our final point, Number 10, this is now primarily a shooting army with assault support. And I think that's a big switch from where they were. Um, they used to be focused, and kind of we said this earlier, focusing on assaults out of that, like those deep strike underground positions. And what you have, and you had some powerful close combat units. Pure strain gene stealer, or pure strain gene stealers were better than NIDS gene stealers. Like, not that long ago. Um, aberrants were really good. Acolyte hybrids, depending on their weapon layout. Uh, 
or their weapon loadout and uh, hybrid metamorphs. They had all these like weird weapon combinations you could build to like really maximize the, the deadliness of those particular units. Um, now with the emphasis on the crossfire ability and the keyword and like crossfire and expose and all the things that can play into that. Um, and also a number of those powerful units have, had their stats shifted around a little bit there's been like i think one or two lost like a point of toughness or some of them gained toughness some of them lost strength um a lot of their weapons got toned down um yeah like aberrants don't hit nearly as hard as they used to their weapons went from like doubling damage to being plus one or but doubling strength to being plus one strength um uh the neophyte or the hybrid metamorphs just have metamorph mutations as a generic like power sword basically. Yeah. We had a letter a little while back that like talked about this and, and it's, mm-hmm. it's very true. It, it like they, the, the options in close combat have really kind of been simplified and overall they are less impressive. Um, yeah. They, they, if you're focusing on, say, like aberrants and metamorphs and it, like if you want to do a gene, uh, close combat focused army, there is, I think there is still a way to do this. It just takes more work and there's going to have to be a lot more like synergistic support to make it work rather than right. just, I have the big guys and I throw them on the table and they run at you and smash you. That's not really how it works anymore. <laughs> no, like I'm looking at a list like Goonhammer had an article and this is back in February because we've sat on this book for a while. Um, but talking about like how uh, Gene Steeler cult shifted up when the Warzone Knockmond book came out and they put together like a sample list of putting pressure on your opponents early and it's a Twisted Helix detachment. It's got six units of Acolyte hybrids, three at 10 and three at five, a Patriarch, a Magus, a Primus. Um, two of the 10-man units of hybrids have um, heavy rock, like four heavy rock drills, and otherwise there's a lot of hand flamers about. Uh, 15, a unit of 15 Metamorph hybrids uh, under a Trap Sprung. The uh, a unit of ten pure strain gene stealers with they came from below another unit of ten pure strain that pure strain gene stealers another unit of nine pure strain gene stealers a Keller morph with perfect ambush a Sanctus with a cult sniper rifle a biophagus which is uh, weird because you're not using it on aberrant so it's not quite as strong but on some of the other things it, it can still get some work done and then two units of jackals and two Goliath trucks. And it's like, yeah, there's absolutely a way to do this as a a mostly clo- or as a somewhat close combat army. But I'm still seeing like units with lots of hand flamers and jackals and a killer morph and a sanctus and Goliath trucks. These are not close combat units. Yeah, the close combat units are there as like you put pressure on them with like this close up shooting, and then you spring the trap with the the close combat units and that, yeah, it's where it's like, I think this is more an army where you have shooting to put the enemy in a bad spot. You kind of control the flow of the bat, the board, you thin out the enemy with shoot. Like you might not wipe them out 
Because a lot of your like your guns aren't necessarily the strongest, right? I you, mean, you, you're you using just, like auto guns in many cases. Yeah, it, a list like this, it, they're going to be just trying to soften up the the enemy units enough so that the melee can like clean up. Exactly. And so rather than being like an assault army that wants to run forward at you, that then uses some shooting for utility utility and picking off big targets. It's like, mm, it's not quite that that much anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is evidenced by some of the some of your best characters being shooting support. Like there are more characters that provide shooting support than there are that provide close combat support. Yeah. And so um, again, this is not to say this is an all shooting arm. This is not Tau by any any means. This has some very strong close combat elements, but I think trying to play this as a pure assault army would be a bad play. Uh, I think, yeah, using, like, use, you've got all these tools. Like, they've given you the crossfire tool. They've given you units that are really decent at shooting and can pick off, whether it's characters or thin units down. You've got lots of tools to be able to do that. And this is an army where you have to really function. You have to have, like, you have to use and know how to use every tool in the toolbox. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think you can, there, there's not, uh, like, even with some of the characters, like, yeah, the killer morph's an absolutely killer shooter and the Sanctus can just, like, auto wound people or, like, auto hit people with a sniper rifle and possibly do mortal wounds and things like that. It's like, yeah, but that's still only like two single characters and they can die really quickly if you're not careful with like how they're placed in relation to everything else. Yeah. So, and I think that is one of the reasons why like this army is strikes me as like right a, down the line as far as power level, like right in the middle. It is not a super weak army, although I don't and I don't think it's a super strong army. But it is an army that is also only as strong as the person. It's only as good as the person playing it. I do not think this is an army that like, it's not like Nids where you can just pick up a bunch of monsters that do mortal wounds and just rampage. Like it is not an easy button army in any way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I have to say like in, in the two games that I got to play, like (laughs) I, I, I know that I, did fairly poorly in both of them, really. But, like, that's just because I'm still learning the army. But, like, mm-hmm. I I did notice, like, just between game one with Dennis and game two with you, Rob, like, I remembered more things. And I I actually know that I did markedly well better in the game, the second game than I did in the first game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, this is one of those things. This is an army. Like we talked in that letter. We're like, yeah, you just have to know your army inside and out. That is especially true. With this army, you cannot like just pick up this army and expect to go. You have to play this army a lot against different opponents. And I think that is also some people would see it as a barrier to entry to this army. As far as like it, it is a high skill army. Yeah, I think it's high skill, high reward. It's high risk, high reward, and it is not an easy army to play. But if that's the kind of gameplay, if you love that, like positioning and length, like this is one of the few armies that I think really can play the trap game. Like, 
you know, Tao has the whole like, oh, the Kalyan army style where it's like, we lay a trap and we lure you in and then pounce. And it's like, yeah, but it still doesn't really feel like that. It's just I'm focusing more on the latter half of the game than the first half. Right. This like, isn't a. Th- this army, like, actually plays that way on the table. Like, mm-hmm. really, like, you have to. You got to be there the whole game. You got to know exactly what you're doing from, like, start to finish, where you put your units, how you deploy everything. Like, you got to know the plan. Yeah, absolutely. And... And it, it rewards you if you do it well, but it's also an army that will punish you if you do it badly. And yeah. they, because the individual components of this army are not strong. It's kind of like a guard. It, it, and I, I think it is very close to guard in that regard. In that regard is that, um, the individual pieces that you have are not necessarily strong. It's using them all together properly that will make the big difference. And in a, I, it's a shame that. There are easier and more just like upfront, more powerful armies out there. And so I think this one does kind of get ignored. I haven't kept up on like what the, uh, like the win percentage is for this army, but I know it's, it's generally considered one of the lower ones. And I think it is just really because it's so much harder to, yeah. to play. And, and like, we we also noticed like our games were like thousand point games played on mm-hmm. a smaller table and th- that is i think an uphill battle for uh, a a army whose individual components are like weak like this yeah so the the smaller board size you know made it harder for m- me to bring stuff up in like an optimal position from underground and like I just didn't have quite as much punch to be able to deal with like bigger threats in the list that I built so I like smaller board size smaller point size for this army actually makes it even harder oh absolutely yeah it's like you you just have that to like you don't have the room to make mistakes at a thousand you know when when you're that close so and you also are reduced in the number of tools you can take you know you're you've got half as many things you can bring to the table so you need like i said you need to have all the tools available and the points to really make use of them so yeah it's it's a tough army to play but if it's the if it calls to you and i will say you know, you talked about like how this army plays like you're setting up a trap. I think this is probably the best fluff to gameplay implementation of rules. I mean, they've been getting really good lately. I think this one is about the best one they've got. Like yeah. as far as playing the way it, it should feel. And they managed to do it without a lot of really difficult rules shifting over time or having to keep track of points that I've earned through the game or, you know, it's just like, 
yeah, there's a few basic basic mechanics you have to know. Once you understand crossfire, you'll understand it very quickly. Ambush is ambush and underground are not difficult to understand. And then the others like the unquestioning loyalty, relatively easy. Summoning the cult, it's just a thing you can do. It's like there's all these little components, but none of them none of them individually are that hard. So, yeah. no, I real I like I like the implementation. It's just it's I, it's also not an army that I think suits the meta right now very well, which is what probably has hurt it competitively. Yeah. I would love to see what it looks like in a in narrative play though, because I think you I think in narrative or in pickup play, this could be a like a really, really strong army to play. Ah, and I think that wraps up our ten things you should know about Gene Sealer Colts. We did it. We finally we, did we it. finally caught up. <laughs> we did the thing. We carried on. We 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 delivered as promised. Um, I, I will promise not to make people wait this long on, on the guard army whenever that codex comes out. And that, and I'm not saying like, oh, we have advanced word. No, no, no idea when guard is coming out. I imagine by the end of the year, because it's one of two codexes that won't be updated by the end of June, because we know like June, early July, we know chaos space marines is coming out and that leaves us with demons and guard last oh and leagues of votan will be dropped in there sometime so heck yeah hey when the guard codex comes out at least three of us are working on guard armies or guard detachments in some fashion so hey we'll actually have people to talk about it and i'll talk votan (laughs) that's fair yep you get short guard i did notice and maybe somebody um the Gene Steeler cult, like that tectonic drill fortification. It's gone. It's gone. Yep. It's not. It's not in here anymore. Oh, do, do I don't even know sell- if they've done a generic rule for it anywhere. Right. That was the only thing I didn't know is whether or not that was part of like any generic fortifications. Do they even still sell that kit? Um. Let's see. Uh, no longer available online. I'm going to guess that's a hard yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah, it's gone from the site. It does not exist. Like, like on the rest of the world site, it lists as no longer available online. On the American site, it's not even there. It's like there's not a thing, (laughs) not even an entry for it. So it's it's done. They need more, you know, uh, faction specific terrain. So they really do. But uh, anyway, that takes us over to. Hobby progress. Um, obviously, the last big hobby progress was me finishing up 3,000 points of Dark Angels for uh, Midwest Conquest. And then that weekend. Um, so over Memorial Day weekend, my brother-in-law told us he was sending us uh, an anniversary gift. It was going to arrive in three parts, and we were not allowed to open any of the boxes until all of them had arrived. And on Memorial day proper, the third box arrived and I was, I was finally allowed to open up these boxes were, and he was not giving us any clue. No, I take that back. He gave us one clue with it. He said it would be, it was something that we could maybe make money with, which is totally on brand for him. He's, he's one of those guys that always has like a a side hustle of, or, or three going on and kind of expects everyone else to be the same way. And, so we're like, okay, we have no idea what what this is. And they're all in Amazon boxes. And we crack open, like, there's two huge boxes and one small box. 
and I'm like, okay, I'm going to crack open the, the one of the huge boxes, and inside the huge box, there's another cardboard box, and inside, and that cardboard box has the words any cubic on it, and I'm thinking any cubic. That name sounds real familiar, but I can't place it at the moment. I like the context just wasn't there. He sent us. An AnyCubic Photon Mono X 6K Resin 3D Printer and Washing and Curing Station and a kilogram bottle of resin. So I now have the Resin 3D Printer. I've joined the... I have now joined the <laughs> chat, Kevin. <laughs> um, By the way, I think I, I think I invited you to a couple of uh, Facebook groups over the last week. Yeah, I need I, I need to join those. <laughs> I saw the, the invites. I'll, I'll jump on those. But... Uh, um, so, so I've been mostly doing like test prints of like D and D style models just to kind of get a feel for it. And I've already, I'm actually already going to have to replace like the FEP film on on the resin bin because which is ma- made to be replaced. It just if it gets yeah. damaged at all. And I did a test print run yesterday, and uh, I was getting. It, the the resin was adhering to the FEP, so the models were all coming out kind of. Meh. But uh, they were all getting kind of flattened. But and I actually had three that just didn't stick to the plate at all. They stuck to the FEP instead. So they, I just had three models that just didn't print and were just like the the support base was all that was left on the in the bin. But uh, but I've been I've been playing around with it. The thing puts out amazing quality prints. Um, I've printed out like a number of D and D prints, but I've also uh, printed out like some sample models from one page rules because they do their own mini lines. Um, so like I've been printing out and I went ahead and picked up some of the releases for their not tomb Kings for fantasy. So, um, I'm going to try painting up a tomb Kings army, which is why I was thinking about getting like a spray can of uh wraith bone and then just doing skeletal <laughs> horde contrast paint all over it and then touching up like gold and teal details and calling it good. Yeah. Yeah, that that skeleton but, uh, board contrast paint is really good. That's what I use yeah, on that uh, one uh, brood lord that I painted with contrast paints. Yeah, nice. it look yeah, it does look good. Um, and yeah, it's like it should paint up pretty quick. And and like the amount of detail on this print because it is a a six K resolution LCD screen on it. Um, I showed photos to you, Kevin, of like the shield on one of these guys. You can read the tiny hieroglyphics running down the middle yeah. of the shield. It's it's insane. Now, as far as printing anything GW slash Warhammer 40K related, um, I found and I think we've talked about this a little bit in past episodes when people have asked us about 3D printing. And I found things generally fall into four camps. First or four four general groupings. There is group one, the this is a conversion bit. This is a bit that does not represent anything that is necessarily produced by GW or is so generic, like it's a shoulder pad with a symbol on it, or these are mm-hmm. custom heads for like guardsmen to like because we want maybe maybe it's alternate heads for battle sisters, so we have more facial expressions or, or it's um, a wolf catachin head wolf head for a knight. I've yeah, that those. kind of thing. 
where it's not anything that's produced by Games Workshop, but it's a nice bit that's compatible and kind of gives you more variety. So there, there's that's group one. Group two is the this is a very clear proxy for something from Games Workshop, but it doesn't look exactly like something from Games Workshop, but it could be a stand in 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 a pinch. Um, I see a number of like ver- variety guard armies available uh, where it's like these are modeled to look roughly like Imperial Guard. They have weapons that are roughly analogous to las guns, but don't look quite like las guns. And they they make heavy weapons teams that have like mortars and missile launchers, but they're still generic enough that they don't look like guard missile launchers or mortars but they, yeah they fit in like you could absolutely use this as a proxy army and nobody would really bat an eye everything there's a one-to-one for like WYSIWYG and stuff like that but it looks different enough from gw stuff that it could fit in there's the third group which is this is modeled specifically to look like something from gw but isn't a model <laughs> they produce i have seen alternate uh aspect warriors for Eldar, so you can print these are not warp spiders and these are not striking scorpions and these are not shadow specters, but they look, they definitely have like all the el- hallmarks of Eldari. You know, they have like all the same design notes. It's just not a, it's not like somebody just scanned in the model and like, okay, that now we're going to let you 3D print, you know, 3D print that. And then there's number four, which is somebody scanned in the model and, and you're going to be able right. to 3D print that. <laughs> like those tend to end up on like Thingiverse or Colts 3D where there's not a lot of safeguards on who puts what up there. <laughs> and, you know, they're just waiting for the takedown notice. But uh, so it's it's interesting. Like I've I've kind of been leaning towards uh, looking. I've been looking mostly for trader guard stuff because I have the trader guard from the... Uh, the Morok box set because I went ahead and picked up Kill Team Morok, and the Trader Guard in, between the Trader Guard in there and the ones I have from Blackstone Fortress, I have the makings of like two and a half infantry squads, and I really don't want to necessarily buy a whole bunch. Like those those boxes will be available separately, just like the the veteran guardsmen, you know, like the we are Death Corps of Krieg, but we're calling them veteran guardsmen because for some reason we don't want to put Krieg on a box. Um but I don't want to pay sixty dollars a squad for them. And they don't include like heavy weapons teams, and I've got to figure out like how am I gonna convert up heavy weapons teams because I'm gonna want to be able to throw some of those in. And mm-hmm. I just have not found a lot of like like there are some that are really close, but not quite with the same, uh, the same aesthetic. And like even some of like the conversion parts, like the difference in modeling between the Trader Guard that they're doing now and like doing Trader Guard heads on like Cadian bodies. Cadian bodies are so much chunkier than like the newer models they do. So it's it's kind of tricky to figure out like what, how am I going to do this? And I haven't found any um, that quite match. Like, like I've seen others, like this is the, these are, we're going to, we're not calling them Vestroyan firstborn, but we are calling them firstborn and they have equivalents to all the Imperial guard vehicles that we're producing that are just slightly different so that we can avoid copyright strikes, but they're Vestroyan firstborn or there's a lot of not Krieg out there. A lot mm-hmm. of not Krieg. Also a lot of not Mechanicum, 
which is weird because that's all available in plastic. Yeah, but those but those were were factions and stuff that like when 3D printing was just getting off the ground, you know, five, ten years ago, they didn't exist. So rather than paying Forge World prices for Resin Krieg or mechanic and models that just didn't exist, people designed and printed up their own. Some of them, yes, but some of those models have been released within the last six months. So I'm going to say, sure. like, especially well, like sure. the Mechanicum. I, but, now, but there's the reason, that's but, yeah. the reason why those factions have more models out there, though, because for a long time they were not available. So people, you know, people adapted. And of course, there's always just people that are going to be like, here is the scan of the latest uh, Primaris model. Uh, I'm not buying it from GW here, print it, which, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> now, as far as the concern of G, like, Pirate like resin printing piracy will destroy GW because you know, I've seen people tout that around as either as a dire warning or a hope. Having actually worked with a three D printer on about like three or four batches now, um, no, it's not going to happen. It, it is not, and that's part of that is because the speed is not there. I've got yeah. <laughs> a, a like this Mono X has probably one of the largest build plates that a three D resin printer, like a, a consumer level three D printer has my wife's brother's you know (laughs) sprung for a really good one um (laughs) but it's because of that fine detail and the number of layers to like get that fine detail it's slow a batch of a dozen models maybe you know i could probably fit 15 models onto the plate takes like four four or five hours to print it's like maybe have a four hours to print and then you've got to there's the time for like cleanup. You've got to wash wash the excess resin off. You have to break them out of the supports. You've got to cure them. You've got to clean up the entire area. It's like it's a five to six hour production to make fifteen models, <laughs> and that's assuming none of the prints fail. Um, and you, you know, you've had obviously with like you know FDM printers, you've had you know fail you know prints fail and you don't realize it until like you hit the end and it's like oh the layer adhesion didn't work or something went horribly wrong yep yeah and so like there's a lot that can go wrong um you're only as good as the scans and some of the scans like there are some where they like render individual parts like i've seen already seen a 3d scanned kratos like before the Kratos model was out, somebody had built one and it and compared it to a plastic one. And it's pretty close. But then I've also seen some where it's like I saw one that was a, a Forge World Hornet, like the the Eldar, mm-hmm. like fast skimmer. And I don't know how the Hornet is actually made from Forge World because I've never ordered one. But this one, they basically took the hole and they cut it down the middle and you print it in two halves and just smack them together and then like add the wings. And it's like, I don't think that's how the Forge World one works, but maybe, I don't know. But <laughs> but it's like, probably not. Like I've, I've seen, like there's a lot of Lehman Russ equivalents and stuff like that. Some of them, they you do print out like every component and build it the way you would build a GW model. Although I don't know if they include instructions. So that's fun. But yeah, it's it's... Like, yes, could could you 3D print, like, an entire Krieg Imperial Guard army? Absolutely. It would take you days. It yeah. would take you days and days to do it. Um, 
And there's a like, and you better hope you get those models pre-supported because if you don't, you've got to add supports yourself, and that's an entire learning process. This is not a hobby that somebody just casually strolls into and like, I'm going to print me an army now. Mm-mm. Let's no, nope. let's let's assume that 3D printing costs come way down, and like they're not. They've come down a lot, but let's say that they continue to come down and you can get like the, the type of printer that you're looking at for like a hundred bucks. Okay. Let's say that we get improvements in the speed while also getting that. And like, you know, you're, you're able to print things off faster. You are still going to have a bunch of people that are like, yeah, I don't want to deal with resin. I don't want to deal with the time it's going to take. I'll just buy the models. Like it is 3D printing is a hobby in and of itself, and I it, it is not going to replace GW or any other company also just making models themselves. Um, no, absolutely it's, not. It, it's a fun DIY like hobby, and like I've made some really cool things with my 3D printer, and you know I think I've you know, I, but it's it's not a replacement for buying the models from a company. It can supplement no. it. It can get you cool things, but it's not a replacement. And it won't be no. a replacement for most people. Right. There's, I mean, there's a lot of like cool models that I'm finding that nobody else makes, like most other model makers don't make. And there's some designers doing some really cool like 3D design and they're going in, they're, they're hiring people to do like, like all the engineering, the support so that they, they don't obscure any of the detail and they come off the, the mini beautifully. And so you're left with this unmarred, perfect model. And those are really cool. And you have like, there's plenty of Patreons where they have like really cool work. And like, you subscribe to the Patreon and you get like a bundle of like 15 to 20 models that you can print out. Um, as long as you have the storage space, because STLs take up, especially as the, the detail gets higher and higher, STLs get larger and larger. I have something like 40 gigs, 40 to 50 gigs of STLs right now that I've, you know, that I've downloaded just, you know, cause I've, some of them I purchased, some of them are free. Some of them I've gotten from Patreons, but as, as like a side hobby or for people who want to create a game and they have people who can do 3D modeling but they don't have the the means to mass produce models it's a really neat way to make a new game line available mm-hmm. to the public like there's a lot of really good ways to implement this and i think it would be fantastic if games workshop got into the stl business i think i think it's a market they haven't tapped but i don't but that's like for printing off like one off characters it's great for knocking off their market, even knocking off like Forge World stuff, it's not really there. It's not there yet. Yeah. And I don't know if it ever will be until, like you said, until it gets to the point where even if the cost gets low, like I think of all the stuff, I didn't buy the printer and I got a bottle of resin with it free. I still had to buy like a gallon or two of uh, <laughs> 91% uh, isopropyl alcohol. I've had to buy a new box of uh, nitrile gloves. I've got a box of microfiber cloths for cleaning the FEP sheet at the bottom of the resin vat. I've got a, I've got two new FEP sheets for the resin vat coming. Um, I've, I bought a bottle of uh, soybean-based eco resin that AnyCubic makes, which does have less fumes. That's a, actually a really important thing to me. Um, also, yeah. I've got it set up in the garage, and the garage gets really warm, and I don't, like, during the summer, we've had a heat wave lately, and so I, 
think I have to schedule my prints to be like overnight or like very early in the morning when it hasn't gotten too hot yet. So like there's a lot that you have to do with this hobby. It's not just, you know, you you see the mean of like GW charges so much for their Mahdi, for for their for these new Krieg models. Ha ha 3D printer go brr. No, no, it doesn't. That's not how that works. Not at all. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's been my hobby progress. I built some Trader Guard and I've been learning 3D printing. So <laughs> it's it's a it's a bit. Well, that's awesome. Like I am glad that you're getting into that. And honestly, I'm I'm interested to see like more details of like the stuff you print off there because my next step once I once I move is to um is to get a resin printer and the Anycubic like Mono X that you have is like the one I was one of the ones I was looking at and uh yeah, that's it's good to know that it's turning out good prints. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't really done anything hobby wise, uh, as I just mentioned. I'm getting, I'm, I'm in the process of moving, uh, and will probably will be over the next month or two, moving into my own house and stuff like that. So I've been buying stuff. I bought the Chaos box, the Chaos Knights box. I bought the Kill Team Morlock. I bought the Age of Darkness starter set. Uh, most of that's probably going to set unpainted or untouched for a few months. <laughs> You're going to be a bit busy. It's understandable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that passes to me. And let's see. Um, well, after Midwest Conquest ended, I said, Knights are cool. And so I, I have now, well, after this weekend, we'll officially say I have a Chaos Knights army, even though, um, yeah, I still have to put a bunch of them together. So yeah, my, I added Imperial Knights and Chaos Knights to my my list this year, and uh, as we discussed, I guess internally with us, it's like it's sad that knights are so much fun to play because I know lots of people don't like playing against knights. So that's a that's a small, I guess, deterrent against playing them. Except they've got cool stories, and the newest Chaos models look really cool. And so I want to build them and play with them. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those, cause I, I will feel like if I feed the, field them at the local game store, like, am I being the bad guy? Then I'm like, well, yeah, I am, but I guess I'll just have to deal with it for this Saturday. <laughs> am I out of touch? No, it's the non-night players who are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. It's just. And this is why I kind of wish knights weren't fun to play, because then we wouldn't have this conversation. And, um, and knights are big, stompy robots are always fun. Like, I have a blast using knights. <laughs> but also, knights, unless you are, have an army that is built to either destroy knights or run circles around them, it's not a fun army to play against. Right, which is why they, we still probably call them the, the hurdle in the meta competitive thing of, like... If you can't take out a knight's army, you're not passing to the top tier. Yeah, pretty much. Um, let's see. Past that, before that, um, we got our tickets for the Crusade event for the yep. US Open in Kansas City. Yep. We're all and going. Then that, I spent so much time hammering out ideas for lists and whatnot because I got really excited. I worked on Custode's list. I worked on Sister's list. I worked on Eldar lists. And then I was like, I should probably put those things together. So I, I've um, put together almost all the rest of my sisters that were still attached on Sprues. I still have um, five Seraphim or Zephyrim. And they're still on Sprue because I haven't decided if I want to make Seraphim or Zephyrim. Um, 
And then I've got all the Eldar now put together. So I've got my 20 Storm Guardians, which were the last things I needed to do. And then I looked at the list. I'm like, huh, all the stuff that I've made aren't on any of the list. Well, at least they'll flesh out the collections. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I it's good to have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you, Richard. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. And then past that, I really want the temperatures to drop because down in Dallas, we've been over 100 degrees for the past week. And they say we've got two more weeks of it coming. I know that's oh, probably that's what cute. it's like every day for you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want it to get at least back down a little bit so then I can maybe prime all the stuff I've put together. You have, yeah, I, 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 you have no one but yourselves to blame for moving, moving to the <laughs> desert. <laughs> I'm not in the fair. desert. You're practically in the desert. I consider I consider Dallas to be close enough by you know it's desert by the foo rule or something. I don't know. <laughs> but thankfully, when I'm not priming, I now have um, more nights to put together. Albeit, yeah, you've got stuff. Nights. You've got you got stuff you can do. Oh, I'll pl- plenty, plenty, almost too much again. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for me, I have put together like i bought a second keller morph for any time that i decide that i want to do like multiple detachments because he was probably one of the models that impressed me most in in the the couple of games that i got to play um and i got him put together uh and then i put together my uh reductus saboteur uh and then i've I painted a few models, started painting on some orcs, just random orc models that I had because I haven't laid brush to a model in quite a while. So, like, I just wanted to get kind of back into it a little bit with some, with a couple of, you know, less important models. And now I've got back to that a little you know, comfort of, you know, actually painting on things and I'm started painting my gas goal. Nice. So it, does it I, feel good to get, to get a brush on model again? Yeah, it does. I, I just need to make sure that, uh, all those primed bottles, anything that I do, uh, it, I get the dust off of it <laughs> yeah. oh my. before I paint it. So I didn't even think about that part. I've had to do mm-hmm. deal with that. I I have had like models that sat out on my uh, my painting bench at my o- old house for like a couple of years, and then I like I pack them away and I get them out. Like I'm going to paint you now. Oh my god! I better get a soft brush and a can of air because I <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this 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 belongs in a museum. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I plan on spending a lot of time on Gazgol and and trying to trying to do it right so i'll I'll see if i can't post some pictures of of progress you know you and i should start playing maybe some crusade games of like sisters against gene stealer cults as more inspiration to keep painting your cultists yeah i i haven't painted any of my cultists yet because i still don't know my color scheme oh well well, you have a whole variety of bright new contrast paints to to splash them <laughs> yeah. in. You can have day glow cultists. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I, okay, maybe I, not day glow. I'll, but. Uh, I'll probably. Well, maybe we should have all three of you choose the scheme. So your gene stealer army, the 
ad or the renegade guard and the normal guard all have same colors. What? Okay. Let okay. Let's think about this. Let me let me look here real quick. Um, let me look at the <laughs> new colors. What would be the most obnoxious new color to paint my death core? Um, <laughs> green. <laughs> no, 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 green actually fits them. I'm green thinking uh, mantis warrior green, maybe, but uh, mm, no, I'm thinking uh, doomfire magenta, or possibly, ah, yeah, or possibly uh, imperial fist wouldn't be bad. Just like really bright yellow. That'd be very obnoxious. That would. This be is the Krieg. Di- this is yeah. the Krieg Distraction Battalion. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Kevin has to paint all his armies ye- bright yellow. Ne- yellow Necrons, yellow Kriegers. Yeah. I haven't. I have, actually haven't painted any of them yet bright yellow yet. So. <laughs> Anywho, Le- yeah. Lexion uh, purple. Lexion. Lexion purple, just a bright gem-like purple. <laughs> this is my Slanesh guard army. <laughs> uh, and that takes us to. I'm just gonna. We're just gonna move on from there. Just gonna move on. Yep. 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 yep, yep, yep. No. No graceful way to segue out of that. <laughs> no. No. No graceful segue. We're just gonna move on to a, a quick morale phase. And um, I know for me, the big thing has been Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, I've been yeah. really enjoying. Uh, we're, we've got five episodes down. The finale comes next week as of recording. So by the time you hear this, the finale will probably be out. I I have really enjoyed it. My partner, not so much, but she is very much of the opinion that she is so tired of stories that involve the Skywalkers. And this one definitely leans into the Skywalker mythology that uh, I can see why that might be off-putting. I've seen people trying to complain about this or that continuity hole that it brings up, and I want to tell those people they should just move on and enjoy watching it for watching it, because I don't really think it opens up nearly as many holes as they think. And I, I've kind of in I, like I think Ewan McGregor is doing a fantastic job of like he was great as a young Kenobi, and he has aged into the role appropriately. Yeah, and and I kind of like how it starts out with like old kind of broken disillusioned and defeated ben kenobi just being like eh, i you know what I, I best best thing for me to do is put all that jedi stuff aside and just kind of you know live a live I, a, a simple life i think it's done a really great job of filling in the gaps about how like he goes from the end of the prequels to being like completely defeated to okay now i'm back in the fight i need to help out this is what i'm doing like i i think that story has made has made it worthwhile um, mm-hmm. I also want to say, and this is just a random aside, I won't get into spoilers on it. Episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi is how you do flashbacks. I really hope that the showrunner for Book of Boba Fett watched that because holy crap, it's so much better. <laughs> <laughs> no, that episode, they did a really good job yeah. of, of working in flashbacks and then working that flashback into the main story and explaining yep. <laughs> why it was relevant also, I don't think it's a surprise for anybody at this point that, you know, Darth Vader makes a number of appearances, and I think they continue to do the job they started with Rogue One of making Vader appropriately terrifying. Yes. Because he does some force shit that is just, like, video game, like, like video game level powerful and 
just absolutely menacing. <laughs> and yeah. and a few moves that are ripped directly from the video games. <laughs> Indeed, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> Not going to say which ones, but uh, but it's pretty cool to see when he does it. Also, he's a bastard. <laughs> I mean, he sets people on fire. He's snapping necks with like just force grips and not also I now I it's it's James Earl Jones still providing the voice. I've heard a couple of rumors that it's like a synthesized James Earl Jones voice, but there's enough inflection that it sounds way better than robot Luke that we got from uh, Book of Boba Fett. So I don't know if it's. It definitely sounds different than Rogue One, uh, Darth Vader, because in Rogue One, you could definitely tell that, like, it, it was much more natural, like, the voice, but you could also tell that that was a voice of a almost 90-year-old guy. Yeah. Yeah. And in this one, it definitely, it sounds good. It doesn't sound synthesized and fake, but it also sounds, like, age-appropriate. So, I think they've, I definitely think they've gone in and edited the voice recordings, but it is very clearly still James Earl Jones. It's just punched up a little bit which is great but yeah it's like it's got the emotional inflection there's a couple of points where he just like straight up yells at somebody and it sounds right like it doesn't sound like oh we took a sound clip and tried to doctor it it sounds legit so um if it's not him doing like the base voice acting and then they layered something on top of it they did an amazing job of of recreating it but yeah it feels like error appropriate and it like, it all looks good. There's a couple of scenes where you can tell that they're using their new, like, wraparound LCD soundstage. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a couple of, like, where the, the filming and the effects didn't quite land, but so much of it has been really good that I, like, I can overlook that. Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, no, everything has to be perfect because it's Star Wars and my baby. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. But like I also know it's it's a pulpy fun action series, so I'm enjoying it for what it is. And yeah, I like the story's it. good. If the story's good, I'll overlook technical difficulties on certain things because this is you're trying to do six hours of television as opposed to a you know two hour movie. You don't have the same budgets. You don't have the same you know abilities. Um, the show most for the most part looks really good, and the story's really good, and that's. That's keeping me engaged. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the casting has been really good as well for like the side characters. And um, and also I'm happy to see that Disney is not throwing their their actors of color under the bus this time like they did in the past. Yeah. Like they're actually like they immediately like Moses Ingram, who's playing one of the Inquisitors, started immediately getting hate. And unlike last time when they're like, you know what? We'll just let the Ke- the Twitter mob do their thing and chase like Kelly Marie Tran off of Twitter and just be at, you know, we'll let them be assholes and work it out. No, they immediately jumped on and Ewan McGregor's like, yeah, no, I, I saw this hate. And hey, if you're a hater, you're not, if you're a racist, you're not a Star Wars fan. Get off, you know, stop watching my show. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, and Disney was like right along with them. And so I'm like, okay, they're encouraging people to like, it's like, it's fine to have critiques of the show. Like, it's absolutely yeah. fine to be like, this doesn't work for me or like you could even say like like this characterization doesn't work for me or this isn't working for me yet but it's another thing to just like why is all the hate being dumped on this one particular person what makes them different than anyone oh that's it okay Mm -hmm. yeah i see i I see what they're going for 
Um, and I'm glad to see that they're not having it this time around. So I, I think maybe they've learned something and when, when can only hopefully, hope, but yeah, hopefully, uh, <sighs> before we go, before we sign off, uh, chaos space Marine codex goes up for pre-order next week. Yes, I figured that was going to be the case. So I imagine we now know what our next episode is going to be. Squats. Squats. Necromunda squats. <laughs> <laughs> two, two and a half hours discussing the, the Necromunda rules that none of us know, how to, none, know anything about. <laughs> However, it is Ron still does. relevant. <laughs> What's that? You know Necromunda. You played it. I have the Necromunda rule book. I okay, haven't played it yet. That's more than the rest of us. I have yeah. two painted gangs and I have not played it yet. But I eventually. <laughs> I have um, the Necromunda still box, relevant. original box, and I have not really done anything with it at all. So. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm only slightly farther along than you. <clears throat> yep. Um, oh, still relevant to today's episode, not only did uh, Chaos Space Marines Codex go up for pre order. Uh, the Combat Patrol Gene Stealer Cults went hey. up for pre-order, which is a Magus, a Goliath Rock Grinder, which can also be a truck, five Aberrants, five Acolyte Hybrids, which can be Metamorphs, and 20 Neophyte Hybrids. Yeah, that's, that's a fairly that's a, useful. A, a good, yeah, it's a good solid start. Um, add in a couple of additional characters, or you could buy the Brood Coven box that they had where it's like the Patriarch, the, the other Magus, and the Primus, and yeah, you could... Um, easily flesh that out into like it wouldn't take much to flesh that out yeah. to a pretty useful or you know small army. Oh, and the horse heresy rule book is available separately, and the Mark Six uh tactical squad is going to be available separately as well. Yeah. Oh, hey, and the the uh, chaplain console will be available. So, an actual other character that is not a predator you can use in blasting. <laughs> So, yeah, some cool pre-orders coming up next week. And that with that, that wraps us up for episode 261 of Preferred Enemies. Looks like 262. We're going to be talking Chaos Space Marines. Uh, but until then, from all of us at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Uh, good night, good gaming, and uh, good on GW for making an army that plays just like the fluff reads. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.